Spoilers? Check. Mature language? Check. Should listeners be advised? Check. There was an idea. To bring together a group of remarkable people. To see if we could become something more. So when they needed us, we could make the podcasts. That they never could. like to cross over, to feel so desperately that the comic is right, yet to fail all the same. Regret it. Run from it. March 2021 still arrives. Evacuate the network. Engage all defenses. And get this man a cold Mountain Dew. Ooh, a cold Mountain Dew. I haven't tried one of those. Nah, nah, nah. Make it warm. Thank you. Fun isn't something one considers when podcasting an event. But this... <laughs> Does put a smile on my face. Who the hell are you guys? Welcome to the Marvel Superheroes Podcast. I'm, what am I, Diablo Frank. I'm not used to going first. It kind of throws off my game. And with me is... Illegal Machine. And today we're going to be covering our segment of Acts of Vengeance. It's a multi-podcast crossover being spearheaded by Fanhole's podcast, but involving like a dozen plus different participants. We're going to probably give you little reminders about who will be involved over the course of this. Mac, were you reading comic books when the Act of Vengeance occurred? Uh, Good question. What year was this? What was this, like 89? Mm-hmm. 80? 90? I think 89. Um, yeah, I was I, I was reading, lightly reading comic books at the time. Like random spinner rack stuff at gas stations. Mm-hmm. Not coordinated reading. Right. And was this something that found its way onto your radar or was it uh, down the line that you came across it? Yeah, no, no, no. I, I think it was on my radar for the same reason it was on most people's radar. And it was the house ads were so good. Yeah. All of them were fantastic. In fact, I've got a big uh, House of Vengeance poster where it's got the one with all of, you know, the hammer and the shield and all that stuff all, laying in the middle. All the with... accoutrement of the, the superheroes, their accessories lying on the floor, bashed up and broken around the feet of a bunch of villains. Yep, I have a I have a large poster of that somewhere. That's a cool... Um, I mean, that was a great house ad, and I'm sure it's a great poster too. Yeah, so I, that's what I most remember Acts of Vengeance from. Um, how many actual parts of Acts of Vengeance did I read? Uh, the more I look at the event itself, uh, the more I'm realizing not a lot. Yeah, and I'm in the same boat. At that point in time, I was in my grimdark anti-hero phase 
and really the acts of vengeance were targeting the more mainstream Marvel heroes. So I only read a handful of these titles when they were actually coming out, even though it was an interesting concept to me. And like you, I, I had my little targeted reading, but I wasn't necessarily the kind of person who could just financially couldn't buy a whole bunch of tie-ins and crossovers and stuff, especially for books I wasn't normally reading. So I think I probably read like four or five of these books in the time period. Yeah, because it wasn't like it was one issue per title. We're talking three, two to three issues per title across the entire fleet of comic books. That is a lot. That is a lot of comic books. Yeah. I want to say there's something like 30 some odd chapters of this thing and they're not closely related to each other. It's more of like a theme. Um, So I don't think there's any good reason to want to read all this unless you've just committed to reading the whole thing. Uh, And I think it was an entire summer, like three months worth of Marvel publications. Not every issue of every publication, but a large number at least dip their toe into it. Well, yeah. I mean, I'd argue three issues is not dipping your toe. (laughs) I think three issues is is, that's a huge chunk to take up from an ongoing title. Some of them only like did one issue, I think. So some of them were like were fully committed and the other ones just like dipped in for a moment. Uh, It was also uh, unpleasant too because they kept having these titles that really had nothing to do with Acts of Vengeance getting the banner. So I'd have felt kind of screwed if I had picked up one of those books trying to collect the entire story and literally nothing to do with the story was in that chapter, which I think we're going to address later on in this podcast. I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, we can address it now. So the first Acts of Vengeance bannered title for Iron Man, who is who we are covering this uh, episode, was Iron Man 250, which is the second part of Doom Quest. Iron Man, Doctor Doom's famous crossover from Iron Man 149-150. And the sequel was in 249-250. And for some reason, they put an Acts of Vengeance banner on 250, the double-sized, spectacular um, ending to Doom Quest Part Two, or what? I don't know if they actually call. Doesn't it actually name this one? Title, no. I don't think they don't think it title it. But uh, but really, other than just having a villain from another team's group in it, it's got nothing to do with Acts of Vengeance. The the next two parts, two fifty one and two fifty two, those are the two that are actually tied into Acts of Vengeance. So it, it's strange they titled the second part of a two part story with Acts of Vengeance and not the first part, right? It's and, very and this strange. is the whole point of Acts of Vengeance is to have heroes fighting villains that they're not used to fighting like we haven't really addressed the, the whole premise do you want to explain the premise or do you want me to yeah I mean, cause, so that was the that's the premise is that basically they shuffled up all these villains to go fight people they're not used to fighting but right? there's like a, there was a core group of villains that were supposed to be spearheading this and, and manipulating various people to fight one another um, yeah yeah I was never an Iron Man reader obviously what was interesting to me though in trying to do a little bit of research is I realized that you and our other podcasting partner Mr. Fix It uh, did an episode years ago it was one of the first ones we ever did it was the first one that was done that I wasn't a participant in where you talked about a crossover between Iron Man and the Hulk and you actually helped to give a lot of context for what Iron Man was going through in this time period and I tried to look into that a little bit I don't want to tread the same ground but it looks like this was the last major arc of the second run if I recall correctly by two of the great Iron Man creators David Michelinie and Bob Layton and it looked like the arc started at the very end of issue 242 where Tony Stark gets shot by an ex-lover slash stalker and it, it basically carries through to 250, which is the end of their run. It is, my understanding is that was the last run they ever had on Iron Man in the main title. Is that right? Uh, you are correct, sir. Yeah, they they did some uh, miniseries, like four, they give them four issues to do and stuff like that. But and it was but it was a long time after 1990 before they made it back on the book. A lot of the story arc seems to come to a head with issue number 248, which is directly after the the material you and Mister Fixit covered, where Tony is supposed to give over control of Stark Enterprises, which is the 
second company he had, right? Yep, had, after Industries. Yep, he, Industries first and Enterprises. He was going to give this over to an African-American woman named Marcy Pearson, and he decided that he was just going to be Iron Man and not be Tony Stark essentially anymore. There was one moment in the issue where there's a airline hijacking, and the terrorists are the popular front for redistributed freedom, which sounds like something that somebody would tweet today. Um, yeah. These two Arab guys are hijacking the plane, and they're either going to get attention for their organization or many American dollars. The politics of the creators are kind of seemingly on display in this particular episode. You said that. So I, I've not read this run in forever. So that was 249 or 248 right before this. Right, right. Iron Man ends up boarding the plane and taking out the terrorists. And there's a great moment where a kid on the plane says, look, mommy, Robocop. That sounds familiar, actually. Yeah. <laughs> the reason why Tony was in the air in the first place, he was heading to a manufacturer called Cordco that his original company had owned, but he had lost in the interim. And they had come up with this chip that you could put in somebody's spine that would uh, theoretically give them the power of, of mobility again. Like he'd been crippled by getting shot by a stalker and he was trying to find anything possible to get him, his ability to walk back. When Cordco decided they weren't going to give him the chip because it wasn't wouldn't be ethical to use him as a human guinea pig that the development hadn't progressed to the point where they were comfortable putting that into a human being. He literally made a phone call and had bought the majority of the shares of the company so he could have controlling interest and the guy still said like, look, fire me or not, I'm not going to put this in you. And so he's having to deal with the recognition that he probably is never going to walk again and he's got to go to a hearing for the crazy stalker lady to make sure she gets put away correctly and she just does this whole character assassination thing it was weird because there was a there was a very Johnny Depp Amber Heard vibe to this hearing where it's like and I would normally be like questioning Tony Stark but in this case she was actually a psycho giving false testimony and hearing that it just dispirited Tony even more while he's sitting in his wheelchair his hover chair and then they bring in all these character witnesses for Tony they remind him of how important he is Tony Stark is and how while Iron Man is a tool for getting things done ultimately he the man Tony Stark is the guy who gets most stuff done and so not only does he manage to prove that this woman is giving false testimony and that she needs to be put away in a psychiatric asylum because she's dangerous and she's hurt a bunch of other people including the inference that she might have murdered her own brother he recognizes that now that he's taking care of her he can't hide away from the world he's got to get back out there and be Tony Stark because Tony Stark is ultimately more important which really ticks off this Marcy Pearson woman can you tell us a little bit about her? I do not remember much about her. I remember the Kathy Dare. Kathy Dare was the girl who shot him, his lover, who shot him and paralyzed him. That's really more what I remember about the this story was him frying or uh, becoming paralyzed. He was in the chair for a while using the Iron Man armor as a prosthesis. They put the chip in him to get him to walk again. Then I think eventually this leads during the Link Kaminsky era. This is part of what ends up destroying his nervous system for what I, re- I think I remember. Right, because I did um, been to Iron Man in that time period. And I remember he was going through the same stuff where he was getting handicapped again. Yeah. I think that the chip wasn't working or something and it was actually his whole nervous system apparently was dying off on him and he, he at one point appeared to die. Yes. Yeah. And that, that's when so his final appearance was as War Machine and then after he passed away he donned the War he gave the War Machine armor to Rhodey mm-hmm. and that's when Rhodey became War Machine. And it's interesting um, too because he's having a fight with Rhodey about having to use the chair and stuff and he tells Rhodey you would never have to experience anything like this like what I'm experiencing and uh, then the MCU happens. Yeah. I know. Isn't that hilarious? I liked Mrs. Arbogast. I know I'd come across her in readings in the past. And what was interesting to me is I, I thought it was progressive to have this African-American woman take over the company. And it reminded me a lot of when Pepper Potts took over the, the company in Iron Man 2. And a lot of stuff that Miss Arbogast w- does in the comics is stuff that we see Pepper do in the movies. And I, I really got a lot of that vibe. It, it gave me a sense that the movies did a pretty decent job of reflecting maybe not the entirety of Iron Man, but certainly it seems like this era, that the vibe is very much the same. I was hearing Robert Downey Jr.'s voice talking. Not as much 
touch with uh, Rhodey. Rhodey did not sound like Don Cheadle no, reading his no. dialogue. Um, but I just it really had that vibe. I, it, you know, I know you love at least the first two Iron Man movies. Did you feel like that was a good reflection of this time period? Yeah, I think th- I think they gave Robert Downey Jr. and John Favreau. I think they read the Leighton Michelini stuff, the first two runs, and then some of the Lynn Kaminsky stuff. That's what I've always thought they read because that's what a lot of the stuff feels like to me. Because uh, I think Rhodey is a lot more like he is in the Lynn, Lynn Kaminsky stuff than he is. He's a little, he's kind of not dopey sidekick, but he's almost like Black Wolverine with no powers, right? Or he's, he's sort of like Black kind of Rambo. A, a B.A. Baracus kind of vibe going on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so yeah, he's he's not quite who he is. But whereas with the Lynn Kaminsky issues, he seems a lot more like you would see him in the MCU, where he's almost as much an equal mm-hmm. uh, ego, not ego wise, but stature wise, where he's like, I'm, I'm freaking James Rhodes. You know what I mean? I wear Iron Man armor, too. I'm I'm as king shit as you are, dude, uh, as opposed to sidekick. Right. Um, and, and that is actually something else that was uh, bothering me a little bit with reading these issues is we've got a Falcon and the Winter Soldier coming up. And it really feels like that's a continuation of a lot of stuff that would have happened in Captain America comic books and would have we would have liked to have seen in Captain America movies. But since they retired Cap early, I'm really happy to see a lot of that material getting explored, even if it isn't with the character I want it to be explored with. It's still characters that it should be explored with because these are people that are tied into Cap. This is both two of his ex-partners. And uh, one of his ex-lovers and partners is going to be in the story as well. Where with Iron Man, his legacy to a large degree has ended up falling onto the Ant-Man series. And I, I, I imagine... No. no! War Machine! So the War Machine is happening then? Yeah, I think War Machine's happening. They're going to do a, like an Armor Wars type arc with War Machine. That's right. Um, they, they, they're even calling yeah. it Armor Wars, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think, I think I'm going to get some of my more tried and true Iron Man stories. I'll just get it with Don Cheadle, which pff, I'm not mad about that. Like, why would I be mad about that? I'm not a big fan of Falcon or Winter Soldier from the movies. So if it were me, I'd be happier to see Don Cheadle as War Machine carrying on, you know, with that material. Not, not, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, pref- I with Falcon and Winter Soldier, I'm expecting to enjoy the material, but not necessarily the lead characters, you know, the heroes. Where with Don Cheadle playing Jim Rhodes doing an armor war, while I know you would rather it be Tony being involved with that, I can still, I'm more jazzed about that idea. I want to see a show with John, Don Cheadle in it more so than I don't want to see a show with these other two actors. Yeah, I, I'm in no way like upset about that. In fact, like, and, and that's the one thing about all these, this Disney Plus Extended Universe, I find that it's making a lot of these movies and stuff that were not great before. It's adding these little, you know, it, it's because it's an ongoing continuity, it can give you a chance to look back at some of the worst movies. Like I was telling you with, with uh, Thor The Dark World, like I, I think I put a tweet out there where I was like, I watched Thor Dark World and it's not as bad as it used to be only because so many jokes were poked at it in Endgame and uh, Thor Ragnarok that now some of the scenes in Thor the Dark World that I was like I would groan at before now I can laugh at them because they're funny because I know they pay off in other movies it hits right it hits different and and so the fact that this can kind of roll like this it's I don't know it's kind of twofold I don't know if that has anything to do with what we're talking about but it's just something I've been thinking about lately where I'm like this is kind of kind of cool that they're able to continually enhance these not so great some of the not so great chapters you can kind of you can look at them from a different light Um, and they say it's a different one of the huge differences between the DCEU and in the MCU is that DC uh, has a has a flop or it has a movie that people don't respond well to and instead of doing the whole rebrush themselves off and, and, and walking it off they try to redo everything all over again or try to, to uh, change the directory of the universe and with Marvel they take their hits but 
but then they actually go back and and build upon that and make something make make a, a silk purse out of a sow's ear. I guess you could say they they take something that wasn't so great the first time around and they manage to build it up into something that's better. And, and they just have confidence in their own direction where if something doesn't work in this one movie, that's okay. We'll we'll make up for that later on down the line. We're not shaken to our foundations. We're not thinking that we have to change everything. We just recognize that this one thing didn't work out and maybe we can find a way of making that better as we progress. Yeah, man. I guess we'll see what we can, we'll see what the Snyder Cut bro. Anyway, I don't want to talk about Snyder Cut in this hack We're not talking about Snyder Cut. Uh, Instead, okay. we can start talking now about uh, Iron Man 249 if you like, the first part of our two-player with Doctor Doom. Yeah, and, and so we, we made the executive decision that since 250 has the Acts of Vengeance banner, we'll go ahead and back up one and go to 249 so we can at least read the complete Doom Quest sequel. Although, again, this doesn't have much to do with Acts of Vengeance, but strap in, people, we're going to talk about it. Uh, issue 249 opens up with Doctor Doom. Doom ba- yeah, he's basically having a concert performed for him and uh, they're sort of looking at him, they're sweating and they're like, he's holding his hand out for the, the thumbs up or thumbs down whether or not he approved of their performance and he's about to give a thumbs down when this gigantic lightning bolt appears and there's this random floating machine and of course because Dr. Doom's like oh this is some power I better get my hands on it he grabs it and he sends it off for his dudes to get analyzed it was weird though because it's like you said machine and I do think it'd be interesting if this thing were like having some sort of a clockwork mechanism where it's kind of moving or something it just sort of looked like a barbell like a, like an Aztec barbell or something yeah kind, I mean kind of kind of like a gauntlet it, a little bit but nah, I mean, like it's kind of got a not, gear not, at the not, end not of it a, not a gauntlet a goblet it looks it looks like something you might want to drink out of but uh, sealed off I don't know it didn't really look I, I didn't know what it was supposed to be well I mean neither did he that's why he grabbed it and he went, sent it off to have his dudes analyze it um, from there we go to because this will con- constantly go from Doctor Doom to Iron Man Doctor Doom to Iron Man until it's united folks so bear with us here so now we're in California and Iron Man is he had bought a mall they're doing this grand opening for the mall Iron Man decides to show up and perform a stunt uh, where he blows up this it looks like an asteroid he blows it up and really it's like popcorn so it's raining popcorn and everybody there's a woman with a JRJR fan club shirt pointing at the sky which is pretty funny that would be John Romita Jr. everybody he's sort of doing his whole spiel about welcome to the mall or whatever Everything gets 10% off uh, because it's opening day, blah, 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 courtesy of Stark Enterprises. When the same thing happens to him, this orb of light appears and there's a machine that looks exactly like the piece that Dr. Doom just had. And he's looking at the same thing, like the energy's off the charts. He can't get a good read on it. So he tries to BS that it's just part of the uh, the show like the popcorn was. And he decides he's got to go fly off and check it out. Um, so he takes it, gives it to his people at Stark Enterprises. And he's all like, I need you guys to analyze this thing and give me a report in an hour and give me a report. Just like Doom did on his side, right? And, and I'm sure that it was intentional. They're trying to show the similarities between uh, Doom and Stark and how, you know, they're kind of two sides of the same coin, it seems like. You know, obviously, uh, Tony's a lot more benevolent, but this is a guy who still has a lot of expectations and wields a lot of power, which, again, reminded me a lot of Robert Downey Jr. in the movies because sometimes he's so swaggering and he has these great big displays of wealth or power, and I feel like that's just uh, him showing off. But then I read the comics like, no, he, he actually did that in the comic books. Okay, okay, that, that was them uh, taking liberties in the movies it seems like yep exactly so uh then we come back to dr doom and dr doom's guy's like oh you you wanted your report in an hour sir and he's like yeah and he's like well you also wanted us like sweeping the country looking for any more anomalies like this and we found one and they show it to him and sure enough it shows it on the, the mall grand opening on tv and doom just says we are not amused what i thought was funny about that too is that would have been so difficult to do in that time period but it, it would actually be pretty reasonable today to, to uh have 
a, a program written up to look for a similar anomaly. Um, so it, it almost seems like they were futurists. They could see what we would be more capable of doing in modern times. Yeah, it would, the hashtag would just be hashtag orb would be trending on Twitter. Um, so from there, we cut back and it, it sort of explains some of what you talked about earlier. Tony's there getting a checkup for his spinal implant. Yeah, I, I don't think I've, I've mentioned when we were talking about the issue, but in, in the end, Rhodey finds a doctor that would apparently uh, went back to something like Iron Man 130 or something, like before the first meeting of Doom and Iron Man and that Doom, what's it called again? Doom Quest? Doom Quest. Okay. Uh, do, do Were you familiar with that doctor? <laughs> I don't think so, man. Some of this stuff is just, it's just been Wait, too long. Okay. Yeah. But she does, she agrees to do the surgery. It's a reasonable success. At the end of 248, he's on using a walker. By 249, he's able to rely on a cane, a simple cane. And, but he still needs to get checked up to make sure he isn't going to fall out. Yep. So then we cut back to Tony. One of his girlfriends picks him up and her Countach. She drives him back to his place. And when he pulls up, he sees like a giant, it's like a huge uh, limo there. And she's like, maybe I should wait and see if Tony's okay. She's like, no, he'll call me if he needs something. So he goes, inside. She, she was around for a little bit, right? Ray LaCosta? Yeah, I think so. She said she sounded and looked familiar. Mm-hmm. There was usually at least one chick. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes con- there were a couple chicks. So he's inside having a drink or whatever and his, I guess, housekeeper hears a ring at the doorbell so she goes to open it up. And I lo- This is a great panel where she opens it up and says she's this tiny woman and she's staring basically at Dr. Doom's navel and he just says, I am Doom. And she just faints. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just walks in past her and he tells his guys, uh, pick the woman up and see that she's made comfortable. Well, she kind of looks like Aunt May's younger sister. So totally, totally does. Totally does. <laughs> uh, and I like too that uh, uh, while he's intimidating Tony, who can't even if he were in perfect health, couldn't make it to his briefcase where the Iron Man suit is housed, but certainly not in his current condition. So Doom's intimidating him. He walks in. He sees that he's got a Renoir over the fireplace, and he's like, "Oh, yes, I have four. Had four of those, but I decided to burn one." And Tony's like, "You burnt a priceless Renoir?" And Doom's like, "It displeased me." And it's just such a Doom moment. Yeah, and. and- and all I could think about was, man, see, this is the kind of stuff you lose when everybody knows. When you don't have the secret identity, you lose some of this stuff. I, just, I like the whole he's trying to sweat it. I know I'll probably, you know, it gets a little it wears a little thin after a while when this happens in every single issue. Right. But in this circumstance, it's cool that Doom doesn't know he's Iron Man and he's waiting for his lackey to probably show up. Meanwhile, Tony's sweating and his thought bubbles like, how do I get to my freaking briefcase? I'm so screwed. Dr. Doom just walked in the front door. I had no clue this was going to happen. Well, it does remind me of the moment from the Avengers that. Uh, with uh, Loki and Tony having their tete-a-tete. And yep. uh, that was such a great moment. I, I, it was on cable the other day and I watched that sequence and I was like, God, I, I'm going to miss these kind of moments so much. And hopefully the, the next generation will be able to bring those kind of moments to the, the series. Doubt it, but I agree. So then basically he says, you've got like a day. He goes, I know you have the other piece of this machine. I want it. You need to give it to me. And he's like, dude, there's no way I'm giving you this thing. And he's like, you've got a day to comply. So from there we go to Stark Enterprises. Tony's just clearing everybody out. And Rhodey's like, I'm going to stick around. He's like, you got to get out of here too, dude. He's like, no, I'm sticking around. I'm going to help you. It's going to be you and me. And we're going to, cause obviously Rhodey knows he's, he's Iron Man. So he's like, it'll be the two of us against Dr. Doom. Yeah, this was a moment that kind of broke me too, though, because he ends up having a Gatling gun. And all I could think was, dude, you were Iron Man for a couple of years there. Get this man, one of those silver suits of armor. And it, it, I can see why Lynn Kaminsky started to elevate the character of Jim Rhodes after this run, because it's like, yeah, this dude was Iron Man. Why? he's running around with a Gatling gun he can do more than this let him yeah dude just give him an armor man what are you doing <laughs> but then I guess it. I don't know if it so maybe that breaks the uh, it's like bodyguard breaker or something. you can't have two Iron Men like why, how do you have two Iron Men I guess I don't right. know they may have explained this in some other issue I don't know okay so then from there 
the Doombots come down and they're sort of uh, plowing over Stark Enterprises' defenses, and Iron Man's out there jacking with them and knocking their heads off, and uh, lots I of like, cool. He melts like through one of them with his boot jets. Yeah, I like that Tony was kind of analyzing how his uh, security measures were working against Doom's bots. How you know he was, he was only catched like 10, 15 percent of the bots, but he was proud that the security measures were doing something against such an overwhelming force. Yeah, because it was like knockout gas, and he's like, yeah, that's not going to happen. That's not going to do anything against robots, right? But yeah, some of them did work, right? Until one of them comes up behind him and puts him in like a bear hug and then self-destructs. I love that he actually references Huggy Bear in 1989 like any kid's going to know what they're talking about. Do you yeah. even know who Huggy Bear was? Uh, from Starsky and Hutch, right? Antonio Vargas Jr. Okay, good. <laughs> no, Snoop Dogg. Oh, God. <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> Carry on. Okay, so while Tony well, by, while Iron Man's distracted with all the Doom bots, turns out Doctor Doom is just waltzing through Stark Enterprises. Uh, and Rhodey is in the room with this orb as sort of the last resort. Uh, let me see. I can't remember if this, this exchange well, the, is Oh, yeah, the so. orb like uh, becomes immaterial and like Tony had put it into an adamantium vault. There was booby trapped with bombs that uh, Rhodey actually tries to trigger before because Doom himself actually shows up to get the device rather than one of his lackeys. And so Rhodey's going to do what he can to prevent it from getting into his hands. But the device itself seems to work against all those measures and essentially floats over to Doom and gives itself over to Doom, seemingly. Yeah, I guess, so I guess we should have said Tony's li- last line of defense was he put it in an adamantium vault surrounded by explosives. And he was like, look, Rody, you've got the trigger here. If you can't, if for some reason Doom gets in here and he's going to get this thing, just blow it up. Uh, so that's when he goes to hit the detonator to blow the thing up. It just it turns immaterial and rises through the adamantium straight to Doctor Doom, who waltzes off with it. Uh, so then Tony's still dealing with the Doom bots. Rody runs outside to kind of tell him, "Hey, man, things gone already." And he, I, I kind of liked him Gatling gunning that Doom bot down. That looked kind of cool. Uh, yeah. Well, I liked it when uh, Tony blasted the head off that one bot and then ripped it in half with his with his hands. Like, yeah, he sticks his, his hands in his neck and holes and just rips it in half. Yeah, that was awesome to to, to destroy the last Doombot. Uh, so then he, then he tells him, he's like, dude, this thing literally just turned transparent, floated out through the top right to Dr. Doom, and now he's got it. He's like, all right, I'm out of here. Um, so he's just hoping he can find it before Dr. Doom can put them together. Um, so then, let's see, Doom puts the two pieces of it together, and he's starting to recognize now that there's magic, right? Because Dr. Doom is a magical bro himself, and he's saying that there's this thing definitely has some sort of magical properties, and he puts it together and like nothing's happening. In fact, it had been all glowing and going crazy and it just stops and it's just sort of floating there and then this like black goo starts coming out of it almost like a venom-esque symbiote kind of thing and it gets it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and he says according to my armor's radar the nearer iron man gets to the more the light grows it's the black light um it's like someone wanted this to happen manipulating us to bring us together uh with the joined artifacts iron man quickly bef- get away before and then iron man bursts through the wall and they are consumed in blackness and then they disappear and that's the end of 249 yeah and then we get to 250 and i gotta be honest with you i was not enjoying most of the covers during this run uh particularly after the point of 250 i just don't think they were very strong covers but i've always really liked the cover of 250 and in particular i liked that he had to hand draw in these circuits there's like a circuit board that's a border around the characters on the cover and what i, I thought was neat about it is because of how that border is shaped and because you it's clearly hand drawn because this is back before you would have just like done photoshop and have like an actual circuit board or something. It also kind of looks like runes and the fact that Merlin the Magician is on the cover and you know that magic is going to play into this. I I thought that it did a good job of conveying both the magic and the technology that are going to be at play in this this, uh, uh, book. Yeah, I don't know if I ever actually looked that close to see that it is like little circuit boards all over it. That is pretty cool. Unless it's some sort of zip-a-tone that he had made. I don't think so. Uh, I think that the pattern is repeated so it's probably Xerox given the time frame. Yeah. Um, But but at least the portion of that 
that the portion that's replicated over and over again is, it appears to be hand drawn. Yeah, 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 it does. The more I look at it, the more you're, I think you're right. Yeah, I really like 250, but you're right. 249 is just like, <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes the the covers are just like, wow, that's literally what happens in the issue. <laughs> Not a lot of that's just like a blown up panel, you know. Yeah. So of um, course the next couple of covers uh, covers is going to be Iron Man's fighting somebody, and then no, Iron Man fighting somebody else, and that's the cover because that's the issue. Spoilers. Yeah. So this is the 250th issue, and it, the cover says it's the year 2093 AD, and Iron Man must team up with Doctor Doom to save Camelot. Which looks suspiciously like Camelot 3000, a maxi-series that was put out by DC a few years earlier about the story of Camelot playing out uh, millennium in the future. But there's a lot of, you know, I guess the Marvel Universe is a little bit more advanced than the DC Universe because they've already created world peace by this point and everything looks like something out of a Legion of Superheroes story with, you know, hover belts and, you know, uh, uh, all these fanciful, uh, uh, like, uh, well, anyway, I don't want to say too much before we get into it, but I, I thought it was kind of curious. I got the feeling that the guys were borrowing heavily from Camelot 3000 with the story. Okay, so I never read what it case at Camelot 3000? Yeah, yeah, it was, it, uh, Brian Boland. It's one of the only... Ex- oh, word? I think it may be the only extended run that Boland draws in total. 12 issues. Wow, I, I want to see this now. Um, it was a trailblazer, too. They had trans characters. They had queer characters. It was a multicultural cast. They were pretty well ahead of their time. Uh, it's just that Mike W. Barr, I don't think his writing is at the same level as Brian Boland's art, unfortunately. Ah, uh, that's a shame. So I, I got a lot of Back to the Future 2 vibes, which Ooh. when did, when did Back to the Future 2 come out? Uh, I want to say that was in the 90s. So I'm, I'm pretty sure this uh, okay. predates that. Okay, cool. Because there was a long gap. If I remember correctly, Back to the Future came out like 85. And I think it was like a good five-year gap or so. I want to say it was like 90 and 91 that the other two came out. Okay, so I, I should go ahead and just say, in case you don't know, okay, Doom Quest, the original 149-150 issues, where it was a tale of Doctor Doom and Iron Man going back in time, and then they end up fighting against each other in Camelot, where Iron Man represents King Arthur's court, and Doctor Doom represents whoever they fought, whatever, yada, yada, yada. Um, and they come, and, and Merlin's involved, it's the whole spiel. Eventually, they have to use their own, they have to combine their own intellect, they disassemble their own armors, and use that to build a time machine to get themselves back on a current day. In these two issues, it's the opposite. They're pulled forward through time to Camelot in the future. There's a reason why they went to Camelot in the future. It's because before they went to Camelot in the past. King Arthur recognized the value that these guys uh, brought to the Dark Ages and so wants them to come back along with him as he's been reborn into the present day crisis of 2093. You also have Merlin in this and I want to say that we've had Merlin in the Marvel Universe in the past, but I think this is a very specific Merlin. He strongly resembles like the Disney version of Merlin with the dunce cap and he, you know, instead of having a purple outfit with a bunch of stars on it, he's got a black outfit where you've got an actual star field on it, um, but it still very strongly recalls Disney, and this is a kind of the loose Buddy Christ version of uh, Merlin, it seems like. Or a, or a Gandalf the Grey version, you know what I mean? It's it's very stereotypical wizard. Can you stereotype a wizard? Good lord, that joke could go all sorts of directions. Doom and Iron Man arrive in 2093, and they're confronted by the wizard, Merlin, who, and of course Doom tries to just blow him away, and he turns his blasters into flowers, you know, he does some tricks like that, gets him mad. And, um, so then they're, they meet King Arthur, who was a child. And they're like, why on earth is King Arthur a child? And I, I love this quote where they said, uh, 17 years after what, uh, after he should have awakened to clue the young king on his, uh, 
on his memories and purpose, uh, the first part clicked. Arthur was conceived right on schedule, but it seemed the unwitting couple chose to parent him, chose to parent him, had career considerations. So they had the embryos frozen until they felt they had time to care properly for the kid. <laughs> so it's like because it's the future, these parents, you know, oh, no, you know, I'm not ready to give up my career for this kid yet. So let's just freeze him. <laughs> I thought was hilarious, dude, because that's such a like if you I could totally hear something like that happening right now. Right. Uh, Where it's like, oh, no, I don't want to disrupt my career for a child. Uh, So since he's conceived, we're going to just freeze the embryo and we're going to thaw him out when we feel like we're more equipped to handle, you know, a parenthood. So because of this, though, he's got this lag on when he should have been born. So instead of being, you know, a 30 year old uh, ruling King Arthur's court in the future to uh, face this huge calamity facing the planet, he's a kid. So that's when they decided they needed Doom and Iron Man to come back to help. It's just cute seeing him in short pants on the throne. Yeah, with the, like the it's not a bowl hey, cut, but yeah. Well, and of course, Doom wants nothing to do with this, and he doesn't even understand why he's been uh, chosen to help out. Since in the uh, original story, he's actually one of the threats. Uh, but Merlin makes a point of mentioning that, well, you know, you don't know what your future is yet, um, which I'm, I'm just not sure if they ever really paid off. But uh, when oh, they Arthur, do. Oh no, they oh no, they, they do. do. Oh, they do. Oh, Oh, yeah, they do. Yes. We'll have to get to that. Uh, but Arthur remembers enough about his past life to invoke uh, a relationship that Tony had while he was in the Arthurian times. And Iron Man actually kneels before King Arthur. Yeah, he. Uh, so in the 149-150 issues, he had his boomstick moment where to impress uh, King Arthur, he attached some of his mini transistors to his throne and made it levitate. And everyone's like, oh, this dude's incredible. You know, instead of this is my boomstick, right? Oh, uh, it's Return of the Jedi with... Uh, uh, T-3PO being levitated and becoming a god to the Ewoks. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so then he was like, well, how do I know you're king? How do I know you're the King Arthur? And that's when he says, you made my throne levitate. And then he mentions, mentions Eleonora, who he falls in love with in that story. Because, of course, he, not, he doesn't fall in love with, but that's his that's his girl in that story. Because, of course, he's Tony Stark. <laughs> um, and that's when he's like, my liege. Because he was full on part of King's Arthur, King Arthur's court back then. So I think that's kind of cool that even the great Tony Stark uh, still remembered his allegiance to the throne. And, and King Arthur. Of course, Doom is not, uh, like you said, Doom, yeah, he says Doom serves no one. He just flies off. And, uh, and I love it. Big bulky jet thing sticking out of his back where it's like, no wonder he wears a cape, but also it's sort of like when Cap would occasionally wear his shield under a, a dress shirt or a blazer and it's like, there's no way you're hiding that shield under that. Somehow he's supposed to have this gigantic rocket hidden, but he comes across some teens with hover belts and he's like, hey, we're in Rome. So he steals a belt from one of the kids and throws him aside to die. His friends had to dive down and save him. And they were like, such violence. What, what, you know, what happened? We don't do these things anymore. So it was a cute moment. Uh, it's very Demolition Man. Because that's that's what it is, is that somebody's actually, the world is no longer equipped to deal with violence. <laughs> so that's why they need Doom and Iron Man, because literally somebody's threatening the Earth and they don't have any weapons anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's what, these kids were just like making fun of, Doc, I love it, dude. These kids were clowning Dr. Doom for his jetpack, and they're like, a jetpack? <laughs> like, where did he get that from? The, stuff like that throughout this thing just it cracks me up. I don't know. I, I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. So well, yeah, like just like he weird. mugs these kids and takes their <laughs> their upper belt. And uh, the threat is coming from outer space and Iron Man makes a point of mentioning that he'd stripped down his armor. I'm guessing they probably the armor had gotten kind of out of out of uh too too crazy to where they couldn't write stories around it, so he apparently had to power it down uh, to a degree. And so since he can't get to space unaided, they have to get him equipment that will allow him to get to space, which meant going to the mall. And Tony's like, "Oh, this is the, the 
legacy of my generation is malls. Great. I like how it's almost like a callback to the previous issue where he's opening up a mall. You know, he's yeah, where he opened a mall. Yeah. Yep. But it's it's funny because obviously we live thirty years later and malls are dying. Dead. So I'm Super wondering, dead. Are malls going to be like the LPs where in another generation they're going to come back roaring again? But it's cute because he has to go to Radio Shack to get his parts, which of course that's not a thing anymore. And one of his parts is a Tandy six thousand, which is such a dated reference. I'm not even sure you catch a Tandy right reference, do you? I do not. No. Yeah. But no, I should say though there are kids on hoverboards in the mall pre uh pre Back to the Future. No self-lacing Reeboks though. No, unfortunately. Did you know there's a I don't know if it's a Russian company or a Chinese company that makes those. They're like expensive as heck though, right? Yeah, except you can't wear them. Hmm. Like Why? I think you can put it on and like do the action, but you can't actually wear them as shoes. They're to just like keep in your house. They're like two grand. It's crazy. Yeah, they're, what they like weigh sixty pounds or something like that. I I just don't think they have any articulation. You can't like walk in them. Oh, so you'd be like doing a Frankenstein walk or something. Yeah, yeah, try, you'd look I like guess. Herman Munster. Yeah, it's hum- Herman Munster. Anyway, yeah, okay. So he's inside. Uh, he's inside Radio Shack getting these parts and and what do you call it? Uh, he says, I don't suppose you have a neutron drive and a wave synthesizer, do you? He goes, We haven't carried that sort of thing in years, even for hobbyists. I, I just, it's, <laughs> I love this stuff where he just gets you know crapped on. The whole issue is so funny. And he says, friendly sales folk. I guess some things never change. Okay, so then we cut over to Doctor Doom, and he's in, he's at the Burton Research Labs. And let's see, I don't remember what he's doing here. I think he's trying to steal equipment to take back with him to the past because he's going to use it to conquer the Earth. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, he's trying. He's trying to biff it. Justice League, Lord of Time kind of stuff going on there. No, he's trying to biff it. He's trying to take the Almanac back again. This predates <laughs> Back to the Future too, but um, we may have biffed prematurely because that's going to be a key toward the conclusion of the story. Yeah, and then uh, and and they were like, well, well, why should we listen to you? And he just like blows something up and like this is why. And then he says, no crime, no war, no crime, no crime, no war has made them sheep even more than in my era. Ruling here should be too easy. Would be too easy. I think it would be that, too. That's why he wants to take the equipment and go back to the past because ruling in this time would just be anticlimactic. So from the, oh, and and we should say I don't know if they explained right before this. Basically, it's the old Star Wars satellites mm-hmm. uh, that they were going to make the the defense net around the United States or whatever. Reagan era the, plan, yeah, the, yeah. The, those the, have uh, just been their defense uh, strategy. Yeah, yep. So those have just been floating up in orbit, and somebody's flown up there and take uh, turn them back online. And nobody on planet Earth has any way to uh, defend themselves against these things because again, it's world peace has occurred. And they're doing like gas attacks and stuff too, randomly, given that they're satellite or they're. Yeah, I could I could tell it was gas or it was the 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 beam was killing people or stuff, mm-hmm. but like they were yeah 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 like uh, so let me see yeah the beams were hitting cities and just wiping everybody out like this this was an active issue already this wasn't like oh we don't we can't let them fire the beam once they were firing this thing and killing a lot of people uh so iron man's approaching the thing and this confused me because i didn't continue reading but the guy in the satellite who was firing the thing and told them that iron man or somebody was approaching an iron man hand goes on his shoulder and was like and i was like how did he because he says uh not immediately vance let's see let's see what some servo droids can tell us about our visitor first shall we and i'm like why is that iron man's hand because i'm such a moron i forgot about these two issues <laughs> and you realize that they reveal later on that's the iron man 2020 armor and who is it it's andros stark right. is that the guy andros stark is a, uh, i guess a grandchild or great grandchild of tony stark and tony's really happy that his seed has found purchase and will continue he has a legacy but is it just near the starks just get worse and worse through the generations it seems like oh for sure because arno's no prize but andros is a literal super villain yeah exactly and so he went and he got he dug up andro's armor and is wearing that uh so he's so he thinks iron man is just somebody who drug dug up tony stark's armor from
from way in the past. He doesn't realize that it's actually Tony. And he goes up there and just mops the floor with Tony. I mean, just because Iron Man 2020's armor is obviously 2020 so far in the future. <laughs> it's still a great design, though. I still love the gears all on the shoulders. Um, and apparently these t- sort of battle gear have been outlawed for generations. So it might have been that uh, the Iron Man 2020 armor might have been the last generation of Iron Man armor produced. And that might be why he's like, why would you go to an earlier generation? I've got the ultimate one right right here on my body. Yeah, and, and as he should, he just mops the floor with him, right? I mean, way stronger. At one point, he's like cr- sticking his fingers through the eye holes to crush the uh, uh, the screens that are there to uh, you know expose him to the elements of space. He's familiar with the vulnerabilities, and uh, Iron Man tries to outmaneuver him, but the dexterity of the uh, the later generation armor is high too, so he has no advantages whatsoever. Yep. So let me come back. To, uh, so anyway, I, Iron Man just basically crashes back to Earth. Uh, armor is completely destroyed. Yeah, he has to be saved by equipment from the future that he picked up as a like an optional accessory. Yep. So now we come back to Doctor Doom where he's trying to get get he's trying to assemble some uh, some technology when this big rectangle scans him and basically is like zapping him somewhere else where he's like, oh, this is Merlin. So from there we go to Andro uh, Andros, right? It's Andros. I'm gonna call, yeah. I'm, gonna call, I'm gonna call him Arno on accident at some point. <laughs> Andros flies to this uh, this building and he gets inside and you realize that it's Doctor Doom and Doctor Doom has kept himself alive for these hundreds of years and there's a really good way where do they uh it says the voice uh, is dry crackling like old parchment bringing with it the scent of an of oil and ancient flesh a man whose body is made up of pipes tubes where colored liquid swirls through clear plastic and valves open and close with obscene clicks a man kept alive for over a century by science and secret spells a man time should have taken long ago but a man who whose will is stronger than time i thought that was an awesome because i mean he is he's just at this point he's all robotics it's like just his brain left and to, to hear all the clicking and whirring and there's fluids moving all around in this thing to keep him alive and it was freaking rad at first blush i thought they might have been using the secret wars action figure armor but i checked and they're just there's some surface similarities but they're not the same at all what's cool to me is his legs are thinner and they're much more uh, resemble c3po's giving you the strong impression that the there's no meat under those legs that that's just robot legs at this point um but one thing they did that was really nice is that they changed the configuration of the face mask to where it at first look it appears to be sort of like a handlebar mustache and then when you get closer you realize it looks more like he's got a nasal cannula to give you the sense of him being sickly and older just him breathing through these devices is going to recall Darth Darth Vader Vader. who is of course Doctor Doom majorly influenced so it's almost like them reclaiming some of that influence back from Darth Vader through the depiction here yeah so he so basically he and and, uh, Andros have been the ones have been working together <laughs> i love even dr doom's just like uh neutron beams will sweep the planet destroying the rest because he's basically saying he wants to destroy everybody 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 left will serve me but not to defy me and he's like don't you mean us and he's like hmm oh yes forgive me i'm not used to thinking in plurals <laughs> just like dude this is the most dr doom stuff ever <laughs> well and they both realize that once uh they've conquered the earth then one of them's gonna have to die too so yeah there's exactly. neither one is kidding themselves okay so from there we get we come back to the real or modern dr doom not modern dr doom the Doctor Doom from the past, and he's of course furious that Merlin has beamed him back into King Arthur's court, and that's where he informs them, like, "Hey, man, you can go back to the past." Oh, you know what? You, yeah. I just remembered. Sorry. The reason why he was stealing that scientific equipment is because he was going to build himself a time platform and go back to the past, and when he activated it, it didn't work. Okay, all right. And, and yeah, the reason yeah. why it didn't work right. is because he was brought to the future by sorcery, so the only way he can return to the past is also through sorcery. Yeah. So he said, and "There's no, uh, there's a little twist since you were both brought forward." With since you were brought forward with Iron Man, you can 
can't go back unless he does. And Iron Man says, I'm not leaving until the Earth has been uh, until the threat to Earth has been alleviated. So uh, Dr. Doom does his little like heel clack salute. And I was like, it would appear, young Arthur, I'm at your service. So then Iron Man's like, yeah, dude, my, my armor's all jacked up. I'm not really sure how much help I'm going to be. And they're like, we have to go to the Lady of the Lake. And they're like, the Lady of the Lake? And they basically go to, I don't know, it's like a shopping mall. It's like a parking lot where they paved over the Lady of the Lake. So Merlin has to do a spell to open up the concrete where the Lady of the Lake gives uh, the sword. And he's uh, all like, thanks, babe, afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Merlin is very kooky in this, uh, you know, in the way he speaks. And so Dr. Doom... one tra- of the moments that reminded me strongly of Camelot 3000 because when they try to claim Excalibur in that story, uh, the Lady of the Lake is inside of a sewage treatment plant. Oh, nice. Uh, so anyway, the, the sword comes out. Of course, Dr. Doom tries to grab it because he's of royal blood and it doesn't accept him. Uh, so when Iron Man grabs it, of course, he zap- it zaps him and his armor gets fully repaired and, and he's good to go. Um, I think this is a whole Mjolnir argument again, though. I, no disrespect to Tony Stark, but I'm not sure if he's Excalibur material. No, but I think he I think he wielded it in 149, 150. Oh, I think that's I think I believe, I believe so. I okay. believe so. Do not uh, don't hold me to that. But I don't know why the Lady of Lake would be in this section on the last one. I can dig it. It's literally in a long box right next to me. But um, anyway, um, so they go off to to whip up on uh, Arno or Iron Man does, and of course he uses uh, he uses the sword to just destroy the satellite, and he whips up on Andros. I called him Arno. I knew I was going to Andros. Meanwhile, Dr. Doom goes to deal with himself. Old man Victor. Yep. So he says uh, that the fortress, uh, that that fortress, it's the source of what calls me. It is protected by electronics, but they should but they should be easily easy to notify since they are the same frequencies I would use. And then he so he kind of goes like the the walls, they like Kirby bubble out and you can kind of like there are no doors. They like you go through them. So he goes through the door and he he says myself that I would use myself. And he says myself as soon as he comes to face to face with himself and he goes, welcome. My home quite literally is yours. So now he's standing face to face with himself. And he goes, how could this be that we could coexist in the same place at the same time? And he says, scientific theory is just that theory. Obviously, whoever devised this one had never thought about time travel. Um, So let me see. They kind of go back and forth. It's extremely random, but I happened to watch Men in Black 3 last night. And the the same scenario occurs. Like, how did this happen? This was not, you know, it it must be sorcery. So then he says, uh, is this then what I become? A shell kept alive by mechanics? Uh, a tin man without the dream of Oz. I do exactly what you do. I, I I do exactly what you do, whatever it is necessary. And he says, yes, I do what I must, but I always consider the costs and nothing you gain could possibly be worth such loss of dignity. You, sir, are an abomination. And he says, perhaps, but I'm an abomination who shall rule this world. And he is like energizing himself. So we cut back and basically Iron Man whips up on Andros. Well, it's um, important to note that uh, the, the advantage he has is through Excalibur. The Excalibur, to some degree, wields itself. So he's able to defect deflect blasts uh, by the, the through Excalibur and he, he points out that you know hey sometimes magic is kind of handy uh, he also uh, feels a little bit like Luke Skywalker while he's running around with this saber yeah I believe he, he even says I feel like Luke Skywalker there's a couple uh, Star Wars references in this book like over like he says I, don't, I can't remember what the other one was he mentions Luke Skywalker he mentions another one later on but or earlier I forget um, so we got pe- com- uh, cut back to old man Doom and regular Doctor Doom and he says uh 
uh, Doom shrugs off whatever that attack was, and he says, come, I'm ready for your next parlor trick. And he goes, there's nothing else. That was what I had planned for Andro Stark. I thought it enough. And then our Doom says, how pitiful you've become. Your chair, uh, your chair, is that your control? Is, is your control, is it not? The center from which you manipulate your death machines? And he goes, you, were tr- you are unworthy of, you are not worthy of rule. And he blows his chair up. He's like, now, and he goes, I know. I did the same a century ago. Get it over with. And Dr. Doom just blows himself away, like absolutely annihilates himself. And it's like graphic explosion. Um, he says, the future can be fluid. It can be changed. And by the power in my soul, I swear I will not become that. I don't, I, something so doc, th- this is very much, I don't I want to say the stereotypical Dr. Doom, but this is so Dr. Doom to me. Like that he's disgusted with himself, that he murders his future self is the most Dr. Doom stuff ever. Anyway, so then we kind of have our recap where uh you know the the news is showing andros getting uh arrested and they're saying that kidnapped victims are being freed and you know they're not quite sure what they're going to do with andros because they don't have prisons anymore yeah yeah exactly yeah they're like uh, more facts in this bizarre conspiracy that the problem of andros stark is that no prisons have been operational for and they gets cut off so from there um this okay so this was the last detail merlin starts to whip up a uh, a spell to send them back to the to um modern times and he says it's the nature of sorcery you cannot take anything back that you do not bring with you and uh, king arthur goes farewell and he says i'm content iron man i did some reading while i was here you'd be surprised at how well culture has documented documented the past in fact there's one particular uh there's one point in particular i'd like to discuss when we return and it says you know there's an ellipsis and he goes mr stark and tony goes what you you know you mean they wrote merlin stop don't and they go through into the future and then they get there and they're like huh and they're like looking at each other like what are we doing in the same room and one of Doom's guys is like, Lord Doom, you're back. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, you were the, uh, there was a darkness. You vanished for an instant, and now you've returned. What happened? And they're both like, I don't know. And there's a, a word box that says, you cannot take back anything you didn't bring with you. Mm-hmm. And they're both basically like, the machines disappeared, and they decided to kind of call a truce and be like, I'm out of here. You go back to Latveria, and I'll go back to you know Malibu or whatever. It's a twist. Yep. Yeah. I, one thing I was thinking about, very much a Superman Lex Luthor thing, is from the moment that Dr. Doom is in Tony's house, I'm like, why hasn't he figured out this is Tony, that Tony Stark and I are the same person yet? And then they have that other moment. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's still kind of a cool thing to, to you know, the Dr. Doom could have over Tony. And then they come back and they forget. And it, it's interesting because there, I think the story could have had more weight if it had been, like, I, 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 I'm not one of those people who just thinks that anything dystopian is cooler than anything utopian. But it's like, I wish maybe they'd let this story have a little bit more breathing room so that and then maybe had a, a greater menace to it like a great greater sense of threat because this if it had been played right and they'd set it up where it you know it had resonance that dr doom literally kills himself and is fully intent on changing this future from ever happening but he forgets and of course he's got that threat over tony stark but he forgets that too this could have had a lot of weight to it but i think because it was kind of so light and frothy and it just didn't have enough room to really build up a lot of momentum it wasn't as strong of a story and it as impactful stories it could have been if they'd gone a little bit darker and if they'd gone a little bit more to detail about the future and to some degree it wasn't such an optimistic future because the, the, you only got these two bad elements that are dealt with in the story and then they don't have enough time to do enough damage and we don't see enough of that damage to get a real sense of it so it's just sort of like this light bouncy story where it's got these dark elements that could have been weightier and given a greater sense of tragedy and that might have made it a more memorable story yeah I think part of the problem is, is that uh, I mean obviously Doctor Doom and, and Iron Man are such such a great pair to have because there's so many parallels.
parallels, but the Marvel editing office would never give Doctor Doom to Iron Man on a regular basis, mm-hmm. which is why two of Iron Man's better, well-regarded stories are two Doctor Doom stories, but those are the only Doctor Doom stories. He never comes, like, like at least in the 400 issues I recall, these are the only four issues that Doctor Doom ever appears. Mm-hmm. It's the two from 149-150 and the two from 249-250, and that's it. Yeah, and I don't um, think there's been a lot of Doctor Doom running since then either, to my recollection. Obviously, I'm not as well-versed in the comic as I used to be. Most of the comic book knowledge I have is from going over the solicitation catalogs on a regular basis. So I'm sure there's stuff that I've forgotten. But so much of the Iron Man, I mean, sorry, so much of the Doctor Doom stuff that's happened in the years since you were reading comic books has taken place in like Fantastic Four or in Secret Wars, or he's had several series of his own in the years since then. Uh, He actually, you know, he actually was Iron Man for a period of time. Yeah, I was going to say, I think he actually became Um, Iron Man. But I don't think that they, I don't remember them fighting over that. I think it was just like a natural consequence of Secret Wars or something like that. Um, Do you have to remember too, they actually put out a little slender trade paperback back in the 90s of those four stories with a Julie Bell cover uh, with Iron Man holding Excalibur and Doctor Doom. Do you remember that one? Yeah, I've got, I've got it. Yes, yeah, I own that. Yeah. yeah, That might actually be a good cover art for the podcast, maybe. We'll okay. That. Although, it's funny, we spent a lot of time with Doctor Doom, uh, but this is part of a crossover for Acts of Vengeance, and no actual vengeance acting occurs in this particular comic book. <laughs> so, Correct. Um, so that's too bad. Uh, I might, might, might have to revise that, unfortunately. I have a question for you, because I don't have a good answer myself. Okay. Uh, last night, I was listening to the latest episode of the Treasury cast that Rob Kelly does, where they were talking about the second Superman, Spider-Man team-up, and they brought up the casting of Doctor Doom. Like, if you're going to have Doctor Doom in the movie. Do you happen to have anybody in mind that you think would be good to play Doctor Doom? Ooh, that is a good question. I Who spent would be a lot a good of time Dr. on that Doom. in the wee hours of the morning because I was working on something else and I was actually playing it in the background while I was working on the thing that I meant to be working on. And then that question sent me off in this other direction. And then I never got came up to a satisfactory conclusion because one of the guys that has been mentioned a lot is Mads Mikkelsen, but they already wasted him as Caselis in Doctor Cass- Strange. Yeah, which we watched last night, believe oh, yeah. it or not. Um, Serendipity. Weird, right? Yeah, really um, weird. I thought Peter Stormare would be cool, but he's too old at this point. There aren't really a lot of German actors that you could because I, I would think that Doom would have more of a Germanic accent but most of those guys are have already played something in the Marvel Universe or would necessarily be a good fit so then it's like well do I get somebody to do that accent and also I was thinking you kind of it ideally you want to have a certain age range and you kind of want to have somebody who's sort of handsome classically in case you want to show him when he's a younger person and you really want to have somebody who's tall too because he should be a towering figure and you got to have somebody who's building to be big and bold and talk in the third person and there's so many qualifications of that. It's really hard to find an actor that, that could handle everything that comes with Doctor Doom. There's just a lot of, of weight of expectation with that character. It's funny. I Googled German actors and Michael Fassbender popped up. But I'm like, oh, you know what? He might have been an okay Victor Von Doom, but can't do that. Magneto. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. Um, Man, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, a couple that I thought that I haven't seen come up but I thought might be good would be uh, Viggo Mortensen. And uh, Oh, I like Viggo. Yeah, yeah, Viggo Mortensen would be good yeah and colin farrell i thought might also be good because he's really got that intense look about him like he kind of looks like dr doom in, in the original secret wars with the intense eyebrows and stuff that uh, i thought he might be interesting as well but he's he's teased into superhero stuff so many times and he's gonna be playing the penguin and the batman although it'll be under a ton of makeup it's like i'm uh, you know it's an option 
it just sucks because no matter who play, the, the problem with Doctor Doom is he's such an important character but he's also in a mask the whole time yeah, you get into the whole dark elf stuff where it's just like why, why do we hire this great actor and just slap a bunch of makeup on him we don't know who he is the whole time right. well but the good thing about that is you could get somebody else to do the mocap and so you could actually get like a pretty big name and they wouldn't have to go through the physically arduous process of doing all that acting with other people you could almost get a voice actor for it yeah, that, that was actually I, I thought Kiefer Sutherland had, had a nice voice but I don't think he could do an accent no I don't think so either no. and then I also thought again because I'm look, trying to find somebody who's tall maybe Sasha Baron Cohen oh okay I mean hey why not anyway. oh I, I'm seeing I'm seeing a list on what culture Andrew Lincoln is on the list I could see Andrew Lincoln mm. I guess mm, no not me he's a pretty tall dude yeah I, he doesn't have the looks for it though he's gotta have a mask on clown yeah I guess are you but kidding you he's Doctor Doom the, the visual you want to have a good visual for under the mask like you're gonna recognize the voice well maybe not his voice no you're not because <laughs> he's he's like as British as it gets and everybody thinks he talks like coral <laughs> uh, let's see they have Jeremy Irons on their list I'm sure there's a Game of Thronesy actor that could do it uh, Giancarlo Esposito of course yeah right uh, you can't do that anymore. Gary Oldman's on the list. He's old. Fastbender. Fastbender's on the list. Mm. Uh, I don't know who that dude is. I don't know. Oh, that dude. Who's this guy? Uh, Cillian Murphy. You know this dude? Yeah. Yeah, he does have a good look, but I, I, I didn't feel like he would do that. But I think he played Scarecrow for three Batman movies, though, so who mm. knows? Okay, anyway. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. But that that's that's no good. I would love to see a Robert Downey Jr. versus Viggo Mortensen Doctor Doom story. That'd be cool. Act of Vengeance. A true story. I don't want to talk too much about Avengers number 311 because the Quantum cast is going to cover that later on. But I did want to mention that the main actor of Vengeance uh, related to Iron Man and what we're covering is the Mandarin. Yep. And we haven't really talked a lot about the Mandarin on our podcast, I don't think. You know, I mean, because we did we we hadn't had we started uh, the, our podcast in time for Iron Man 3. We hadn't, right? Uh, I feel like we we've done an Iron Man 3 podcast, haven't we or no? I'm not sure that we did. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Might, that might literally be the last MCU movie for us to cover to complete our loop going uh, uh, forward with the movies from when we started the podcast backwards. Backwards. Was, was Guardians of the Galaxy part of uh, the the first phase? He wasn't, right? Because phase one ends with Iron Man 3, doesn't it? The yeah, yeah, yeah. Iron yeah. Man 3? yeah, so I don't think yep. we've touched it yet. We've complained about it a lot of times over the years. And yeah. uh, part of the reason was because they didn't have uh, much fidelity to the comic books with relation to the Mandarin. Um, how do you feel about the Mandarin as an Iron Man villain? Is he, is he among your favorites or is it just sort of like he's the guy who keeps showing up and so you just sort of acknowledge him no i i i think the mandarin's cool he's got some really good arcs with and uh i don't know i, I don't know i some people find him problematic i think that's a little overblown he's not the yellow claw people i mean mandarin is a language i mean it's you know what i mean i think when people go oh you can't call him the mandarin and i you know at first i was like oh yeah you're probably right and i'm like yeah you could <laughs> why could you call him the mandarin what, what's what what is derogatory about the word mandarin it's not a like villain, a, it's an orange yeah, right uh, anyway so I, I i thought that was always been a little overblown i don't think there's any there should have been any problem with that um but he, he's iron man's most well-known villain unfortunately because really he's not he's never had that big stage moment right mm-hmm. um he's never been the head of a multi-part crossover he's always kind of been the bit character mm-hmm. but i think he's, he's got he's a lot of much an iron man exclusive villain 
like hardly anybody else ever uses him. So if you're not an Iron Man fan, he's not somebody who's going to have much resonance with you. Yeah, but he does a lot of cool stuff. You know, he's at the like Fin Fang Foom. He's at Kaiju and stuff like that. I mean, there's some cool stuff that he's done. I don't even know uh, if a lot of people understand the connection between a Mandarin and Fin Fang Foom. Yeah, Fin-Fang I think the Foom, Fin Fang Foom actually has more of a following than the Mandarin does amongst modern fandom. It seems like. Uh, yeah, I probably wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I think that the uh, I think that the rings were from the same alien planet as Fin Fang Foom or something like that, and that they, there's some tie to Fin Fang Foom in the rings. So the Mandarin has been able to um, control Fin Fang Foom at points yeah. in his w- career. Was that initiated by John Byrne during his run? Or did it predate that? I'm pretty sure that's the Bur- that was a Byrne thing. Mm-hmm. And then Link Kaminsky did Link Kaminsky pick it back up? I can't remember if Fin Fang Foom came back during the hand. Link Kaminsky did a, a big arc called The Hands of the Mandarin because I. The Mandarin had his hands blown off at the end of one of the, uh, I think it was at the end of Armor Wars 2. The rings exploded, taking his hands with him. So he eventually grows back like these reptile hands. So there's a whole story arc called The Hands of the Mandarin. Force Works is in it, all sorts of 90s stuff. Uh, and I can't remember if Fin Fang Foom is in that or not. He might be, but I can't remember. I liked the reptile hands. And they used that in the cartoon too, didn't they? Yes. Yeah. That's His action figure had light up. You press a, a button on his back and his, his hands would glow green. Because one problematic aspect of the Mandarin and especially evident in the Avengers tie-in issues is that he's got long clawed fingernails which is a very Fu Manchu yellow peril thing and since there are racial elements in those Avengers issues like overtly you know on purpose clearly um, to have him have those claws was a little bit squicky but if he's got reptile hands reptile it hands of, it fits a little better you know it's like okay no, there's no uh, derogatory racial element to being part reptile you know <laughs> not yeah and, and, anyway. then, and that fits in with the Fin Fin Foom giant dragon stuff, right? Yeah. So it's not nearly as sketchy. Have you read any of the Avengers issues with the Mandarin in it? Yes, only not in like decades. Right. So there, there isn't much to it. Uh, essentially, uh, part of the setup of Acts of Vengeance is there's a mysterious individual, a lean fellow with sort of like puckish features who can teleport. And he is sort of like a facilitator of all these big villains to create this event, to have uh, the, the uh, square dance of super villainy going on. And um, one of the first people he contacts is the Mandarin. And I thought that was interesting. I think it actually, it might be like the the first two we see in a room together are, I think, the Mandarin and a person who identifies as Doctor Doom. So it was nice that he was actually getting in there early. But that first chapter of Avengers 311, it's pretty much just that. And that's all we get to see of the Mandarin. Iron Man next appears in an Acts of Vengeance prologue in Avengers Spotlight number 26. In a story by Dwayne McDuffie and Dwayne Turner, we open on the United States Maximum Security Installation for the incarceration of superhuman criminals better known as the Vault. A mysterious figure helps the recently arrived wizard to escape leading to a wider breakout. A guardsman manages to contact the Avengers and Iron Man is the first responder. He easily beats Orca when attacked among others. When threatened by a distrustful Hawkeye, given that Iron Man had caused the previous breakout during the Armor Wars, the Armored Avenger threatens to blast him if he doesn't agree to a team up. This story will be covered in greater detail at Back to the Bins. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a back to the men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to yours. You might want to yours only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it'll be used to you at a particular t- and then if you go out of that t- it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't a 
fast enough. So it's better to just set oh, it up. Oh, okay. It, do, it really doesn't work well. So I checked right. uh, I checked my... Uh, mm-hmm. What's it my... Pr- it definitely built build me for the hotel for all three of us. Join Back to the Bins every week for... Goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers. And then we jump over to the Iron Man titles for its uh, two legit tie-ins to Acts of Vengeance, starting with number 251. Oh, hold on. Let's, can we wrap up 249, 250 real quick? I, I, I didn't know we had. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, what, what did you think of the, the, the art? What did you think of the – like? we don't talk Iron Man a lot on, on this podcast. So <laughs> this was one – like basically 100% Bob Layton art. Yeah. Layton I like fine. I've, I've got a piece of Layton art. I like his stuff, but he's not one of the guys that I, I revered as a kid, you know. He was kind of the other guy who did Secret Wars to me. I, I like the clarity. He's a great storyteller. He was just the master of armor, shiny armor. And I love his ink line. It's got that really nice crispness to it. Uh, everything feels sleek and polished. But the, the actual two-parter, I wasn't that into because, again, I, I, it didn't feel meaty enough to me. And I don't know that it was really Layton's best stuff there toward the end of the run, it seemed like. It was fine. It was good. But it wasn't. I, I know I've looked at earlier issues, including the, the original two-parter we keep referencing the doom quest one and i just like the work better there it just worked better for me I, and i've liked him do doing future stuff better in other places like the hercules prince of power miniseries i thought that that was a, a cooler vision of the future than what we saw in these issues so i thought it was okay but it, it was solid it was solid I'm, i don't want to disparage it it's just it wasn't my bag though i thought it was good i because i i, I love tony and dr doom's characterizations in these books i think layton's dr doom looks fantastic in these books yeah, i think they look great in, in, I, that's true. I, I, cause I'm not huge on that armor. I just don't think it's a very. It doesn't have the Iron armor. Man armor. Yeah, I, the, that particular suit of armor. It's a little too bulky for me. There's not enough uh, ornamentation. Um, so it just feels a little flat. Where if he'd been wearing the classic armor, I'd be more into it. I think the Silver Centurion armor looks really nice too. It's just that particular armor. It, it, I don't know. It just it doesn't have the oomph to it. But Doom looked good. You're right. He he did a really nice job with Doom in the in the two parter. Yeah. So I, I thought. The, I th- yes, you're right. This armor is definitely one of the more forgettable, boring armors. Doom looked great. I thought the storytelling was fantastic. I never really got like lost with what was going on. And there's a lot of jumping back and forth from uh, from Dooms here to Doom. I mean, we're literally traveling through time. But then we've got old Doom and new Doom and old Tony Stark. Or we got old armor and uh, Iron Man 2020's armor and everything. And you could kind of get a little confused at times. But I felt like it was really clear and, and done. I thought it was a fu- I thought it was a fun story. It's kind of like a I, you were looking for something a little more meaty. But like, I know Dr. Doom can't ever appear in this book ever again. Mm-hmm. So I think they're just trying to tell you a fun. It's not filler. It's not filler. It's yeah. just sort of like that special guest appearance episode of your favorite TV show where they cross over two TV shows. It's like, oh, that's freaking Doom and Iron Man. And they got a little bit of history. And there's callbacks to the last story because everybody liked the last two so much. But you can't really have it go anywhere because he's never going to be a recurring villain. So it has to be kind of self-contained. Um, I liked the the twist at the end where he uh, you know, reveals that he did some reading and figured out that he's Tony Stark and it's like no and they get back and you know what what Merlin said was true you don't get to take anything with you from the future back to the past and stuff like that I thought, I thought it was I thought it was a fun two-parter anyway and but I, I, has nothing worth, to do with Acts of Vengeance yeah, and it's worth noting too that uh, this was the last story of their run but yeah, the, the exactly. heavy story that I was talking about where they had consequences that you had to deal with and everything that's what was happening in 242 through 248 and so they resolved that, that, that story arc and that was really the last arc of their their run and this was 
was just sort of like an extra fun thing where it's like we want to do Iron Man and, and Doctor Doom one more time and so they didn't have space to build it up more but I'm not sure that they really wanted that space because they just wanted to tell a fun story they didn't want to have to, the weight of a long involved affair so they, what they wanted to do wasn't necessarily what's in my wheelhouse but I think what they they did what they were trying to accomplish and I, I think they clearly had fun doing it yeah yeah. you have, you have to take the two-parter in its context and it was literally wrapping up a run and they got to have their little farewell of exactly 100 issues away from the last time they got Doom and Iron Man together and everybody loved those two issues they got to kind of have their farewell by doing it again um, so anyway I had a blast reading I thought it was fun I thought it was funny it, nothing was too you know heavy with it so it, it was a blast in Avengers West Coast number 53 by John Byrne the UFOs attack Vapor tries to murder Scarlet Witch by turning into cyanide gas Iron Man hoovers her up but she escapes by compromising Tony's armor once she's inside the armored Avenger then knocks Ironclad miles away from the Avengers compound using repulsor rays more details will be covered on the third degree burn podcast in Cloak and Dagger number 9 by Terry Austin and Mike Vosberg the Avengers hold a public forum to address the government's proposed Superhuman Registration Act but they're attacked by a pack of villains Iron Man battles the mutant twins Fenris and Hydra Man Tony is briefly drawn into the dark dimension and is haunted by a vision of being in a useless armor while attacked by booze soaked monsters more on this silliness at Coffee and Comics I'll try. And a large black coffee. And I suppose you're here with no agenda, as per usual? On the contrary, I'm here for comics. I think I can help all of you. Hello, I'm the caffeinated Clinton Robinson, and I host a podcast called Coffee and Comics. On this podcast, I summarize, review, and discuss comic book issues, stories, and related media, usually in the span of time it takes to have a cup of coffee. Sometimes I'm joined by a guest, and sometimes I'm flying solo. So pour the coffee, take a sip, and turn up the volume as you listen to the Coffee and Comics Podcast. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, and directly on coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. And remember, this is where the comics are never too old, and the coffee is never too cold. Okay, so from there we go for issue 251, Acts of Vengeance, Iron Man, The Wrath of the Wrecker. Okay, so as you alluded to before, Bob Layton and Dave Michelini have rolled off the title. So we have the illustrious filler crew of uh, Dwayne McDuffie, Herb Trimpey, and Al Milgram inking Herb Trimpey, which I think is the worst combination for Iron Man <laughs> in the history of comic books. <laughs> yeah, it's at least if Trimpey were doing a Hulk story, there would be the whole legacy aspect for him setting in an Iron Man, a drawing as an artist, not the person you would want to assign to Iron Man, even when he was in his prime, and clearly not in his prime, and nobody to come in there and add a polish, you know, it's like... Uh, didn't Herb Trimpey do the Machine Man miniseries in the mid-80s where Barry Windsor Smith inked him and <laughs> all the difference in the world? Where, yeah. Where's Barry Windsor? And, you know, Barry Smith uh, inks somebody else. It might have actually been, I don't know if it was Layton or it was somebody else, but during that that last run of issues, he inks an, an issue and is like, wow, this is really nice looking stuff. I'm missing now. Like, hardcore missing him now. Yeah. Uh, Barry Windsor Smith and uh, Layton are, I think they're like really good friends. So, yes, they've worked together a few times and it's 
hilarious because Layton is very much like a Barry Windsor Smith where if he inks you, you're just going to look like Bob Layton. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they go at it, Barry Windsor still wins because he's so outrageously unique with his pencils and or inks. It's pretty funny. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, Herb Trippy's done Iron Man stuff before, dude. Did but just, uh, yeah, I'm for sure he has. For it, sure. This looks like I, a maybe Pizza I think, Hut giveaway comic. So <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it really feels like, you know, we've talked in the past about the lack of respect afforded Iron Man, especially going into the 80s and 90s. And I think that has never been clearer than having Herb Trimp do a, a run of issues uh, following uh, Leighton and Michelini. You know, it's just like, well, you know, it, it's not a palate cleanser. It's like a warning of how much worse things could get. And you better be uh, good to whichever uh, creative team we have coming on next. <sighs> Uh, uh, I don't want. Okay, maybe I'm just giving it away. I'm just gonna say right, these two issues hurt my soul. <laughs> these two issues hurt my soul, well, man. These talk are a lot less about the full-on acts of vengeance issues than we we did about these weird uh, tangential ones that just barely connect to the whole story arc. Yeah, these were rough. Dwayne McDuffie became a legend working not only as, as a co-founder of Milestone Media, but it was working animation. I know a lot of us are big fans of his work on Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. I'm not as big a fan of his earlier comic work though this being emblematic of that it's just bad it's just and i know it's a fill-in and it probably was a rush job too i get the distinct feeling that this was thrown together quickly but it sure shows yeah i was gonna say that i don't know if filler is the right term because these are supposed to be two two tie-ins to the big overarching crossover now no that wasn't as big of a deal in 1989 as it ends up being in later years this is like we don't have we have to tie him in to this crossover and now we don't have a creative team on the book what the hell do we do uh (laughs) And it's brutal. So, I mean, we can just quickly. I mean, I don't even know how much you want to talk about this. No, there, there's no. as many. There's a many words as probably half of issue 250 is probably all the word balloons in these entire two issues combined. And, and I'm sorry, I just have to be honest. Especially during the fight scenes, there's just a lot of inanity. It's just like things being said because there's a desire to fill put a balloon in this caption, uh, this this panel because they're the the words are not advancing the story more often than not. It's a lot of I'm going to get you. Well, I'm going to get you. It's just it's it's terrible. It's the fight sequences are just so bad, and there's so much of this stuff that just feels like it's taking up space to fill out two issues. Yeah. So basically, the wrecker shows up and starts well, smashing Stark Enterprise. Yeah, go ahead. Well, we we do have to set up that um, Tony Stark, after having been paralyzed, uh, puts a bunch of money into a research for his particular malady and for also for amputees. And uh, one of the people he's given this money to is the guy who was the original Chemistro from uh, the old Power. Man comics and he I think during one of the stories had lost his foot and therefore needed to have uh, 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 an appliance to walk around um, and so the wrecker has been hired by the masterminds of Acts of Vengeance to find Iron Man and destroy Iron Man and he figures well this guy's the bodyguard of Tony Stark he just needs to smash something that'll attract Iron Man's attention near to Stark since they just opened this facility uh, it's exists specifically because of a recent concern of Iron Man it's reasonable to assume that he would be around for that and that that would be the good place to attack and therefore that's that's how this all gets started yeah and then for several pages it's just the wrecker and iron man just smashing each other throwing planes on each other destroying trees uh 
uh, it kind of just goes on. And like you said, it's somebody saying, I'm here to kill you, Iron Man. And he's like, you hear me? Nobody does this to the wrecker. It's just one-liners over and over and over again. Well, and it's kind of pathetic, too, because the reason why the wrecker needs the money is because uh, he's fallen on hard times and most of the wrecking crew are in prison. And Thunderball won't work with him anymore. Uh, so he needs <laughs> yeah. to have a like, – again, Thunderball <laughs> won't work with him anymore. And so he needs to have a big-paying job to show Thunderball that, that uh, they can still be players in this field for the mercenary purposes. And, yeah, isn't he, he's trying to get the money to get some of them bailed out or something like that, right? Or to spring them. I, I think the money is to attract Thunderball so that they can team up. To okay, yeah, maybe that's what. Yeah, like, so like then Thunderball's uh, like done with a whole lot of them, apparently. So anyway, the, the record gets the upper hand on Iron Man, and, and Tony even is thinking to himself, like, man, maybe I shouldn't have been like taking it so easy or being so confident or whatever. Well, so he's just cr- a guy who fought four, so he got to yeah. take that. Into yeah, the yeah no, dude, the Wrecking Crew were legit, dude. Except the Wrecking Crew, especially in uh, Under Siege, wrecked the Avengers pretty bad. So I don't know why Iron Man would ever be taking him for granted, given their history, but uh, whatever. So anyway, he starts just smashing Iron Man to hell, and uh, Curtis Carr, former Camestro, and uh, James Rose are standing by, and like, dude, we gotta get in there and help, and Curtis just turns and runs off, and Rhodey's like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> You're just running? Come back. So uh, Tony go, or, so Rhodey tries to run in there and save him, and, and Tony just yells at him, like, dude, you gotta get out of here. Like, this dude's gonna maul you. And it turns out Curtis didn't run away. He went to go call his brother, uh, uh, and ask his brother for help. So you see on the other side of the phone, it's a uh, Calvin is his brother's name. He's like, dude, Iron Man's in big trouble. You gotta get down there and help us out. And you see that his brother's on the phone and the wizard, uh, that's, right, that's the wizard, right? Yeah, the wizard is one of the masterminds behind Acts of Vengeance. Yeah, is standing next to him. He's like, man, you know, I couldn't go. Uh, he goes, I just took a job and helping Iron Man might be considered a conflict of interest. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, the wrecker is now like, he's got his crowbar on Iron Man's chin. He's trying to pry the helmet off. Just not great so then he magnetizes the crowbar so that it's the opposite pole of what his armor is so anytime he tries to hit him with the or, crowbar no, it just they're, they're the same pole because they're gonna yeah yeah exactly each other. yeah same pole sorry sorry I, I apologize mr wizard and bill nye for screwing <laughs> that up uh so it pushes iron man away every time he tries to swing at him uh and then he gets then he ends up attracting all the cars in the parking lot and they're like crushing all over him and stuff an Iron Man uh, gets stuck to the side of a semi, but he recognizes that if you superheat the metal, the magnet uh, it decays the magnetism, and he's able to get himself loose as a result. So then the, the very last – so the wrecker's down because of all the cars smashed him, and Curtis is there, and he goes, I didn't run away. I went to get help. In fact, here it comes now, my brother Camestro. And said Camestro is like holding his rays to all of them saying, you won't be so glad to see me once you find out why I'm here, big brother. I'm just here to finish the job the wrecker bungled. I'm here to kill Iron Man. That's issue 250. Yeah, and then we move on to 252. Now, I do want to point out that uh, back in the days when I was reading Power Man and Iron Fist, uh, that's when I was introduced to Camistro. Uh, he was uh, in one of the, the issues I bought, and so he always had an okay costume, but it looked a little bit like maybe uh, Bullseye because he's got this, these circles on his chest that look like a target, and yet that has nothing to do with his powers. He actually has the abilities of alchemy, um, but the dude isn't super bright. He, everything he has he, it came from his brother, which becomes a, a story point in this particular issue. I never read any st- stories with the brother. And in fact, I, I didn't know who he was calling. At, at first, I thought he might be calling Thunderball since they already referenced Thunderball. So it threw me a little bit when it ended up being Camistro. 
so the cover of this one says trapped in an armor transformed into solid lead helpless against the raging fury of Camestro. can shellhead survive acts of vengeance uh writer Dwayne mcduffie penciler herb trimpey inker al milgram so this issue picks up where we last one left off Camestro's getting ready to blow iron man away uh roadie jumps and nails Camestro. it turns like a semi truck was turned into glass and like the glass shatters everywhere that's one of the kind of cool things about this issue is him kind of changing the matter of all sorts of things into glass and ice and ground and all sorts of stuff well in terms of plot and dialogue i'm not liking these two issues but the science uh works and it's fun Kimistro in particular is a very flash villain kind of deal almost literally it's just a ripoff of mr alchemy aka mr e um and like them the original Kimistro used to run around with a gun that could change elements which don't even get me started on how little that makes any kind of sense um but to do something with it uh Dwayne mcduffie's having these cool visual callbacks like uh when the guy tries to blast at roadie he hits a tree and so the tree becomes stone and it actually ends up being good cover for him better than a tree would have been uh, until he turns it into what does he turn it into a gas or something yeah something like that I just passed that page. Hold on. Where are we going? Let's go back. Hold on, folks. Hold on, folks. Yeah. Well, and there's a good bit. I don't know if it's in the first part or the second part where they are looking at Iron Man's armor. And a lot, one thing that people would miss, especially if they only watch the movies, is that for years, his armor, they describe it as a sort of chain mail. But it's just like this thin, floppy metal that he puts electricity through and causes it to harden, um, which is a, becomes a story point later on. I, I thought it was a, he did a good job of setting that up. He turned the tree into glass. So before you couldn't see him because he was behind it and then he turns it into, into glass and then he maces him so he didn't turn it into gas he just maced him that's literally what he says mm-hmm. he says oh there you are what's the matter don't you like the glass okay how about a little mace and then he maced him so i, I don't know where the mace came from he turned the that's, air around him into mace if i remember correctly can you do that is that a thing that's not an element mace alchemy, isn't an element alchemy, it's not a period of itself is not a thing so okay <laughs> you, you kind of have a blank check there okay so like you say he turns iron man into lead which was what the cover story was like how is he gonna get out of the lead well it turns out because the armor is so he he goes to shoot Iron Man again and melts him and they're like, wait a second, there's nobody in there. And it's because the metal itself is so thin that the lead was like just t- like millimeters thick, like a millimeter thick. And he was able to rip it open like tinfoil and run out the back. So he's running through the woods in his underwear with Rhodey. With uh, cut feet like uh, John McClane because they have all the glass lying around. Yep. Yeah, yeah. From the shattered semi truck from earlier. Uh, so the, and then there's a funny scene where Rhodey's got his thumb out trying to catch a uh, uh, trying to hitchhike. And then Tony's like, let me give it a try. And because he's in his underwear he like sticks his leg out with his thumb out like a chick would have in an old 80s movie and this chick this woman's like she stops she's like hop in it's pretty funny it's one of these where because it takes an hour he roadie's trying to get a ride for an hour it doesn't work so it is it a joke about race relations maybe is it a joke about uh the female gaze definitely uh you you've got a lot of uh opportunities there to uh, read into that particular bit how about this don't read it at all folks (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I got a better one for you. Uh, okay, so what what happens now? Chemestro, he's like turning buildings into water, and there's water everywhere. Tony gets another armor. I know that the main thing that, that uh, was unsettling was at one point his brother tries to stop him, and his brother intentionally shoots him in the good foot, gets him off the good foot, and he, he collapses, his, his leg shatters, or the lower portion, and he starts to go into shock. Thankfully, the, the chemical process also cauterizes 
so he didn't bleed out or anything. But knowing that your brother has an artificial leg, you're seriously going to shoot him in the good leg? What a son of a bitch. I, yeah, dude. That is so messed up. That gives you so, so people. So, I hate that character now as a result. What he had done is he had turned the ground into water so that Iron Man fell into the water and then he turned it back like into stone. So he basically trapped him. He buried him under underground alive. Like metal. Yeah, something like that. He buried him alive in metal or whatever. Um, and while he was trying to get out of that, that's when uh, Curtis shows up and he's all like, yeah, dude. Because at first I was like, oh, he shot the prosthetic and changed it. I'm like, no, he shot him in his good foot. He now has no feet because this dude is vaporized. His brother vaporized his other foot off. Like super messed up, dude. So then Iron Man finally, he breaks out of the steel, blows up his blasters. Well, another thing they set up in part because the brother's able to give them inside information is that when he alters something alchemically, it's not stable. And like Iron Man, uh, like Spider-Man's webbing, it is the to break up and dissolve after an hour or so in this case. And so Iron Man, I think, uses once again a superheating to uh, speed up the, that process and cause the ground to, to turn to dust. And that's how he gets free before he uh, runs out of oxygen. Correct, Amundo, man. So that's it. He breaks out. He uses the tractor beam to like zap his. Uh uh, his alchemy palm laser deals. Yeah, he, they. one of the things that the wizard were able to do was take what was a pistol and turn it into wrist gauntlets. Kind of looks a little bit like the old dead shot. And so he fires out of the palms of his hands, sort of like... I mean, it, they, look like they look like repulsor blasts. Yeah, I mean, that's what it looks like. like, like uh, and then Shin from the movie, especially. Yeah, I, so Iron Man blows up the blast. He's like, my hands! He's like, stop! I give up! I give up! Because his hands are so hurt. Yeah, and not only is he totally evil and sadistic to his own brother, but he folds like a blanket. <laughs> It's just like, oh, I'm all done now. <laughs> yep. my, yeah, I got nothing else. My secondhand equipment that I got from the brother that I hobbled, there's nothing else for me to fight for now. What a piece of work. Then Iron Man says, it's time I talk to the Avengers. And it says, X Avengers concludes in Avengers number 313 and Avengers West Coast number 55. Yeah, they, they do make multiple references to Avengers being attacked repeatedly, which we can touch on a little bit. Iron Man is part of Avengers West Coast number 54 by John Byrne, where Mole Man orders a kaiju attack on Los Angeles. Shades of the first Avengers movie, Tony has to fight gigantic monsters in a heavily populated urban area. Not fully understanding the nature of the creatures, Iron Man carefully centers himself and carries a monolith out to sea, then creates a breakwater to ensure that waves aren't kicked up to harm beachgoers. U.S. agent is less thoughtful and has to be saved from plummeting out of the sky. More on the story, again, at Third Degree Burn. Love him or hate him, everybody's got something to say about John Byrne. He ruined the X-Men when he left. That John Byrne, he's a sexist pig. The only thing bigger than John Byrne's ego is... Wait, there isn't anything bigger than John Byrne's ego. John Byrne, oh, he he just draws the greatest butt on Superman. It looks so good. John Byrne is the greatest artist I've ever seen. Wait, who is he? John Byrne's 1986 Man of Steel series gave us the core reimagining of Superman that is still with us today. Third Degree Burn, a podcast about all things John Byrne. The good, the bad, and the legendary. Join Tim Elliott and Brian Hughes as they look over the nearly five decades body of work of one of the most influential comic book creators in the last 50 years. Third Degree Burn can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com and on iTunes. i got a question, though. I'm just so curious. Why doesn't Green Lantern have any junk?
Avengers number 313 is going to be covered by Fire and Water Podcast Presents, so we won't go into too much Never detail. heard of them. Just kidding. <laughs> the Avengers issue are written by John Byrne, who insists on taking second credit in favor of spotlighting the artists Paul Ryan and Tom Palmer, which is a combination I, I like. Paul Ryan was not one of my favorite artists, but I like Tom Palmer as an inker. I think he was one of Bushima's best inkers, if not his very best inker. And so I, he kind of roughs them up a little bit, and I thought that was nice. We see the Mandarin again in that issue, again with the claws and everything. There uh, is some uh, a racist comment from, I think, a cop that Mandarin takes exception to. Mandarin is intending to level the Avengers mansion while he has the opportunity while nobody's around, but he's ultimately stopped by the arrival of Captain America, Black Widow, and of all people, Hellcat. And unfortunately, there's a coloring error so that Patsy Walker's hair is colored dark. So at one point, I thought that maybe that this was Greer as Tigra. Maybe she had lost her powers or something, but it just ended up being a coloring error. Hellcat does reasonably well against the Mandarin for a short period of time. She actually appears as an Avenger in one of the Avenger Spotlight issues. They're going to be covered by another team where they fought the Amazing Android and Hellcat had to save Moondragon because Moondragon thought she was going to attack the Android with telepathy, even though Android did not have a mind at that point in time. So just a little Hellcat shout out, given that we've given her a lot of attention on the podcast. Ultimately, though, it comes down to Thor, Wonder Man, and the Vision showing up. They'd already been fighting the Wizard. And then specifically, I think Thor throws Mjolnir into the chest of uh, Mandarin's armor. He learns pretty quickly that he didn't want any of that action and he ends up splitting. And in fact, he leaves Wizard behind as he blasts the Avengers with the Blacklight Ray. And there's a lot of animosity over the Wizard being left behind. Once he gets back to base, Red Skull is berating him. He's part of a witless race, calls him a yellow race. You know, you would expect a lot of racism from the Red Skull, but they really played it up in this story. Eventually, there's an Avengers issue. I think it's Avengers West Coast where the whole thing gets resolved. But again, other podcasts are going to cover that. We don't want to spoil anything for those folks. Ladies and gentlemen, meet your Thunderbolts. The Thunderbolts, are they the exciting new heroes the world needs? Thunderbolts, strike! Today makes at least half a dozen times the Thunderbolts have done the job we used to depend on the Avengers for. It allowed us to move among you, disguising who we really are, the Masters of Evil. In what is now becoming an old story, the Thunderbolts once again save the city. Enough of this hero talk. You will do as you're told. But... He's right. You may be wearing a songbird costume, but underneath you're just screaming me. I can expose all of you right now. So you see, you really have no choice. You know what? We're done playing these parts. It's time to live these parts. No one betrays Zemo. Figures just when we go in on this hero thing, our blood runs out. Avengers, Defenders, Thunderbolts, I make any team better. We're Norman Osborn's A-team, and he's the big man in charge now. This isn't the team I used to lead. You, honey, are under arrest. You have to fight for what's right every single day bulletproof skin or not. The Thunderbolts have worked hard to change people's minds about us, but apparently we've got a ways to go. Justice, not entirely dissimilar to Lightning, a Thunderbolts podcast, now playing on fanholspodcast.blogspot.com.
that's about it, actually. I mean, what, what do we think about Acts of Vengeance overall? I mean, it was a good idea, at least, right? Yeah, the idea was great. I think it's really, uh, obviously, the execution is not where you'd want it to be. But when you look at, say, something like the Uncanny X-Men issues, where they take a character like the Mandarin, and you could watch Jim Lee, and they get to figure out, okay, well, how does the ma- how would the Mandarin fit into the X-Men universe? And there's, like, actual effort put behind it. I think it's great. I think that these Comestro Wrecker issues are the complete opposite side of the spectrum where you're literally just making filler issues and there's nothing interesting there's no attempt to fit the wrecker into tony stark's business which i think is just is bad (laughs) like it's so bad it reminds me i'm one of the few people that will defend bloodlines that dc had most people dislike that annual in part because every single annual essentially has a tell the same story where an alien bites somebody that person develops superpowers and then the person who got bit and the heroes of the annual have to fight the alien back, but they can't defeat the aliens because those aliens have to turn up at the uh, Bloodbath uh, bookend series, and so nothing gets resolved, and it's just sort of like the same origin over and over again. You're also introducing a slew of heroes that all have the same origin. This is very similar where there's a bunch of guys who've decided to swap heroes that they would normally fight, so out of nowhere a villain has to attack the hero, the hero has to rebuff the villain, they may beat the villain at least, but then you're like, okay, but why did that happen? We'll tell you at the end of the story. You know, at the end of the event. And so that also gets repetitive because, again, it's just uh, there's no motivation to the attack. It's not a long-term scheme. It's just like, hey, go jump that guy. So there's not a lot of meat on the bones of the premise as conveyed in this in most of these issues. But once again, you have something of a fill-in team on Uncanny X-Men and instead of it being whiffing at bat, it ends up being uh, the start of a great run or, or anticipation of a great run. Now, uh, I believe that Longbox Crusade is going to cover the Uncanny X-Men issues, but I do have to say, of the four books or so that I bought during this event, one was Punisher. In fact, a Punisher fought Dr. Doom who ended up being a Doombot. I, I remember that. I remember that. And it was a fill-in, at least a fill-in art, if not fill-in writing. And I'd already been uh, uh, displeased with the book. I was beginning to realize that the reason why I was buying Punisher in part was because I love the Will Portacio artwork and that guy was long gone at that point. And Doc, Punisher fighting Dr. Doom was sort of the final straw and that's when I dropped the book after reading that story. On the other hand, I'd been re- buying Uncanny X-Men more sporadically for the, for the previous year or two because I just did not enjoy Mark Silvestri's artwork I'm afraid on that title and I did not enjoy the direction the book had gone into I didn't enjoy any of the Australian stuff I was just picking up every now and again but then when I saw Jim Lee specifically drawing the Mandarin a villain who I I don't think I was very familiar with if I was familiar at all when he was introducing that story um, and he looked cool he had this really snazzy suit on and he did have kind of like the Fu Manchu mustache but when an Asian man draws it it kind of gives you a little bit of cover <laughs> but also he just looked good you know he made it work and uh, it, this was a story where the the Mandarin is actually drawing me in uh, because he's he, he, he's being drawn in a way that makes me see him his potential right um, now you read the story without going into a lot of detail though could you, do you want to tell a little bit about Mandarin's role in the story and how you how you how you felt he was portrayed yeah I kind of okay so I mean should we even talk about like any basic plot details I don't know I, I, if... I, the thing is is the three issue arc and the Mandarin really isn't a huge part of the arc overall so i think if you just correct the mandarin stuff will be okay without stepping on anybody's toes right right okay so so basically the mandarin is partnering up with the hand the hand are a long time uh x-men wolverine villain right more Group. daredevil but they became they got appropriate true, okay true yeah true okay um and so the hand are basically finding a way to partner with the mandarin because they kind of shame the mandarin it's like dude you keep getting your you know you keep getting your butt whipped by a you know random american superhero mm-hmm. it's time to kind of get some of that shine back 
back. So let's join. Let's kind of join some forces here. We're d- down on our luck. You're down on our luck. We got a plan. Check this plan out. And the plan is they're kind of rebro- reprogramming Psylocke to be like the alpha hand and also to become, quote, unquote, Lady Mandarin, right, to be his right hand man um, or woman. Um, and that's basically the arc of the story. He's sort of this over like you said, he doesn't really do a lot in the three issues. But that's kind of it. They're using well, him. One thing that's interesting, they, they introduced the uh, villain whose name escapes me. He's an Asian yeah, it, woman, the young fellow. Cr- it's, it's, a, it's a lot of syllables in a foreign language, so I'm not going to worry about it too much. It's the, the Asian dude with the long hair. And uh, spoilers for X-Men, he eventually is involved in the death of uh, Lady Mariko, the great love of Wolverine's life. And so uh, in retaliation for this, Wolverine visits the guy like every year thereafter and takes a piece with him. He refuses to kill him, but he basically slowly chops this guy to pieces until there's a 2010 Psylocke miniseries where you see just this horrific body horror where he's got all these missing pieces and is torn up and stuff just trying to provoke people to kill him so he can finally be done with his horrible life but he's introduced just an issue before this and again they had uh, found Psylocke after she'd gone through this device called the Siege Perilous that had altered the perceptions of of the X-Men and placed them into different life scenarios and um, he looks cool too I like one thing that bothers me with Jim and I, I, I'm looking forward to talking about this on Spawn Armor, but it hasn't happened yet. Is for a, 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 an Asian American, he very rarely draws Asian people in his comic books, and so for him to draw a, a, a nothing but Asians for most of this issue and the three issue arc in total, and do it very well, and make me like really enthused about. I want to see uh, stories about the Mandarin if Jim Lee's going to draw them. I want to see stories about this other Asian dude, the young kid, um, if Jim Lee's going to draw them because they look so neat. Um, but Psylocke, the, in order to turn her into a hand assassin, she sort of I think Claremont was trying to riff off of Elektra, and so the whole breaking her down and building her back up again, he also dealt with that with the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries. And so they go psychically through her lifespan. And Psylocke is a character that had a few highlight moments when she first joined the X-Men, but very quickly she became sort of like the dime store Jean Grey. You know, they put her in some armor, and she was a telepath on the group, but I, I never understood what she was doing there because she there were other people that could have done what she was doing better than what she was doing and so this was a, an opportunity for them to to rebuild Psylocke too as, as somebody who mattered amongst the X-Men in part by essentially turning her into Dime Store Electra instead but it for me it worked and part because you get to see the whole of her lifespan and see how she had been trying to build toward a moment of becoming a formidable figure and it hadn't happened yet up to that moment but the reason why I'm going into this detail since it's an X-Men story and that's really not our area is because the way that she does this is over the course of going through these life episodes and these uh, variations on life episodes that didn't actually happen she's claiming each of the rings of the mandarin over the course of the story this sort of dream sequence and as she claims these artifacts she becomes more and more empowered and becomes more and more the dangerous figure that the hand wants to shape her into being and uh, she's essentially killing the individual x-men with the rings to divorce herself from her past and so we get to see her use the rings in a lethal fashion so that once you realize that the Mandarin walks around with all those rings on his fingers all the time by virtue of seeing what she can do with the rings uh, as somebody who is not going to get to keep the rings is only going to barely get to use them over the course of this arc knowing that what she could accomplish lets you know how formidable Mandarin could be as well if handled properly 
Correct. Yeah, and I, I really enjoyed that part of the look. We we like I said, we just read those very wordy Claremont stuff. This is like <laughs> like like dude, you've got Jim Lee. This dude's one of the greatest artists of our lifetime. You don't need to say everything that's happening. I don't even need the art in these stories because he's literally telling me everything that happens in every single word bubble. Um, but it's almost like they should have like a like one of those uh projector overlays of the words so I could turn the page of words and actually look at the art because there's so many words on every page but I, okay so i love that i really like the tearing down of her and she's getting and then at the end of it she's turning the rings over to mandarin to like give herself to him and be, be under his command and stuff like that really really cool like you said the uh his look is really good and like you said th- this is although the mandarin portion of it doesn't really go beyond these three issues the stuff that occurs with psylocke does and that's cool like that's awesome that something that came out of acts of vengeance actually affected the x-men universe for some time um really besides the alteration of Salak, i think the only other long-term uh, legacy of the arc was the new warriors being introduced and i think right. that was, yeah. was going to happen anyway it just happened to happen during acts of vengeance yeah but that's something right but i mean is, that, that this is a direct consequence of acts of vengeance because yeah you know having the hand fighting the x-men was not really a thing at that time period they'd apparently fought wolverine but the actual other x-men not so much so you've got these two elements that are being brought in the x-men books that weren't there previously and it gives it a distinct that that arc a distinct flavor but also it changes Psylocke in a way that would have happened without those two outside influences coming into an X-Men book yeah and you had Jubilee learning about Patch Wolverine and all the stuff and him going back to Japan just lots of really cool stuff happened in those three issues well, I, I will I, I, yeah I'm not sure if the other teams are going to actually cover the three issues it only came the first part so we, I think we talk a little bit about how Mandarin relates to people particularly Jubilee Jubilee is a if I recall correctly she's Chinese American, but emphasis on the American side of it. And I'm sure people are familiar with Jubilee from the cartoons and the like. He takes offense to her have being so detached from her Chineseness, and you basically have something similar to what Lo Pan does in Big Trouble in Little China, where he tries to orientalize her, and of course she completely rejects that. And but it's fun to have that interplay. You're not expecting there to be you know Mandarin versus Jubilee in the midst of this arc, and it is a being a, a important part of the finale of the story so it's really nice to see Jubilee have that moment but also to have an organic reason for Mandarin to be interacting with any of the X-Men beyond the uh, premise of Acts of Vengeance right but but that's where I go into well and I think at one point are, there's some kids harassing Jubilee and they call her a Twinkie because she's yellow on the outside white on the inside and I'm like oh my a banana that's what it was I thought it was Twinkie no well uh, no they, 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 yeah you're right it was yeah. banana yellow on the outside white on the right right, right. Okay, she's you're got right. the yellow raincoat too because she was designed to be kind of a riff on Carrie Kelly from Dark Knight Returns. So. And I'm like, okay, it's a good thing Jim Lee's writing this, or Jim Lee has at least some <laughs> right. co-plot in this. Otherwise, this could be uh, 2021 pop problematic, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, they, they harp on that that she's she's Americanized and and that uh, the Mandarin's almost disgusted by it, right? Well, I mean, a big but, part of the Mandarin is that he's trying to return. They they use the term Middle Kingdom like 50 times over the course of these three issues. Yeah, he he um, wants the world to become old dynastic mainland. Feudalistic, I would say, yeah, but. But in particular, he wants to return to a, a pre-communist China and a feudal China, it seems like. Uh, but but I love – do you see what I'm saying though? They actually put the thought into how the Mandarin would interact with these characters. Mm-hmm. They're in Japan. He's interacting with Jubilee who's Chinese-American. He's of Asian descent. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. there was – the hand is involved. Like there was actual thought put in to taking this Iron Man villain. And there was only like one passing mention of Iron Man at all, which I was upset with. I was like, Jim, can you at least – draw 
Iron Man like a flashback, bro. Come on, please. <laughs> um, and, and but beyond that, he was he could have just been sort of Joe Schmo new um Wolverine slash X Men villain, and they, they treated him seriously like that. Like we've cre- we're we're finding a way to weave him into the mythos to actually make it make sense that he's there, right? As opposed to the record just shows up because I got hired to kill Iron Man, mm. and it's just like oh my gosh, like for real, dude. But I will say, and I I may catch something for this that after reading Iron Man two forty nine and two fifty and what and reading Bob Layton's storytelling. Jim Lee's storytelling gets a little weird sometimes. Yeah. And it's, it's, it, there were some panels where I was like, did I skip a page? And I kind of went back and I'm like, how are we here already? Like, this is not quite as clear. Uh, it was very, very pretty. But I would say the story clear, storytelling was not quite as clear. Uh, okay, maybe it, it helped that there was so much Claremont verbiage. But even then, I would still see a couple panels where I'm like, bro, where do we? What just happened? Well, Which is not a good sign. Rereading these stories too, what gets me like I, I've mentioned uh, in the past, I'm I'm just kind of bored with Jim Lee at this point because if I close my eyes, I can picture how Jim Lee is going to tell a story. I'm gonna I can picture the face he's going to use for a, a particular character, and so I just find it very. Predictable. I think he just sort of figured out who his style and he just does that over and over again. And what I liked about reading these issues is that Jim Lee isn't Jim Lee yet. You could see it coming. And I was already uh, a fan of Lee from his work on Punisher War Journal. Punisher, yeah. While I was abandoning the main Punisher title uh, in the absence of Wills Portacio, I had already moved over to Punisher War Journal from number one. And of course, he was blowing everybody away, particularly with his Wolverine. I'm sure that contributed to his getting this X-Men art. But again, this was just supposed to be a fill-in. And then as soon people saw his work on these three issues they actively started pushing Mark Silvestri out the door and having Jim Lee take over that title but what I liked about looking at these issues is he, since he isn't Jim Lee yet and he hasn't figured out his stock way of, of doing a panel it's more dramatic he, he uses much more unusual camera angles he's obviously giving a lot more thought to how to tell a story he's taking chances that he wouldn't take today I think that if you look at a Jim Lee story today it's more like a Leighton story where the, you have much more clarity from panel to panel of what's happening and he's much less likely to have like the splash pagey type stuff. Or if he does that, it's still in service to a, a more clear storytelling. Where, yeah, this one sometimes gets you from left field. But I like some of the weird camera angles and the upshots and the, the shading. I like that he was using zip tones throughout the story arc. And yep. I like that he hadn't, like, he didn't have his trademark faces quite down yet. So he's using techniques. And I'm seeing elements of his influences that it, it feels more organic. It doesn't feel like the machine that he would become later on. Uh, so I really enjoyed seeing his art work even though it wasn't as cool as it would get and it certainly wasn't as polished as it would get and there was that one issue too that Joseph Rubenstein inked where you're like this doesn't look right where's where's Scott Williams we need to get Scott Williams back on this thing but it still looks really cool and it it had the ability to surprise me in a way that Lee can't surprise me anymore it seems like yeah I mean the the, to to just emphasize what you're saying again this isn't an Uncanny X-Men Axe of Vengeance episode but like when Wolverine is in the sensory deprivation tank and Psylocke's like in his head and he's got like the pustules all over his body Mm. that are popping and it's like shooting blood out of the out of the pustules and the boils on his body and then there's the shower he's going like rage on Psylocke and it's all negative space where the whole panel is black and he's like drawn in red and it's just it looks and I'm like yes dude this is the this is why he became Jim Lee mm-hmm. like nobody was dude this is so different because again this came out at the exact same time as that uh, uh Herb Trimpey Al Milgram issues <laughs> like bro like are you kidding 
kidding me? This is the same month? Like, this is outrageous, dude. Uh, you guys so, can't exist at the same time. What? What? What's going? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it goes to be. It's like if you like one dude is on an iPhone 12 and somebody's looking for a payphone in a phone booth with a rotary payphone, dude, and it's somebody's a pulling a cycle in a Harley Davidson. You know, it's like wait, it, it's completely like it's so when you realize like these came out the exact same time because when you're flipping through the the Milgram uh Trimpy stuff, dude, that could be from 1969 or 71, not 1989. And 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 that's where you see that's when you really have to appreciate some of this stuff. It's like when you listen to Hendrix and you're listening to Hendrix and you're like, dude, this sounds incredible. But then you take Hendrix or uh um Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen, and you have to take it in. Listen to what other dudes were doing with guitars when that first Van Halen record dropped and you're like, "Oh, I get it." Yeah, sure. Now lots of dudes do weird tapping and do effects on their guitar. You have to understand what else was coming out in 1978, right? Like or or when when Hendrix was going on and you have to listen to what other bands were doing with their guitar and then it's like, "Oh, I get it." Now it sounds kind of normal, but when you take it in the context of what else was coming out at the exact same time, that's where you realize something else was going on. Like this is this is just something totally different. Um Dude, so yeah, like I, guitar I, talk. That's so cool. Yeah, now it's just like, "Oh, cool. I can do that from my computer. I can just download an effect in a zip file and add it to this amp and I can make that same sound." But you're like, "Dude, this dude was doing this before anybody." Like that's where you see, "Okay. It, this it's, is it's other these issues. Yeah. These issues created image comics." Like yeah. I get it, right? Like this is what did it. So Yeah, like literally the the art that Jim Lee is doing in 1989, you could, nobody could have conceivably done any earlier than like a couple of years earlier at most. But really, it's it's really 89 because nobody drew like that. Nobody used the same techniques or those con- combinations of techniques. Uh, you just know, if, if anything, you don't look at that artwork and think 1989, you're thinking, is this from 91, 92? You know, you don't even, it's hard to believe it would even existed in 89. Yeah, yeah. So that's why it was just, it was an interesting uh, like sociological experiment to read Iron Man 151 and 152 and then read and Kenny X-Men was it 256 to 259 or whatever I don't know which, which episode which uh, issues they were but uh but to read those issues back to back it is like holy cow this is why X-Men sold 8 million copies mm-hmm. like I get it like I told I, I remember I'm taken back to 1989 I remember now um so yeah that was cool so hey folks go read those uncanny X-Men issues <laughs> but most especially I, I will say I, I know that this was the case when I read those issues in 89 when Mandarin actually puts on the armor and starts fighting it was kind of disappointing to me because he looked so good just in those smart in the suit yeah. the hound's tooth or whatever yeah, yeah. It, it was like a downgrade for him to put on the armor and I, I know that that wasn't Jim Lee's armor either. I believe that that was uh, Leighton did that like at the right before that final story arc. Correct? There was a, a Mandarin story arc that they did. I can't remember when the the first time his armor. I think the armor looked look can look really good. In fact, yeah. I thought Psylocke looked great in that armor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the I Lady have, Mandarin. I think that the intention was for her to keep the armor, and that the hand ninja suit was sort of like an afterthought. And then I think that the boys responded to the the, uh, the yeah. hand suit more, and they just sort of kept that. I think that they they may have made it more distinctive. If 
they know that was going to be her her costume going forward. Where in fact, I thought the Lady Mandarin outfits got a lot of thought put into it. It would have been hell to draw that thing on a regular basis, though. I think the uh, the Mandarin armor. I thought part of it was it was colored weird. Mm-hmm. Normally, it would look cool. I think if Jim Lee would have drawn it and it was colored correctly, it looked weird. At least in Did the issues, like red or something in there. Yeah, it was like or? red or yeah. something. I don't know what was going on there. Um, and then, of course, there's the famous scene where where Wolvie pops the two claws on each side of his neck mm-hmm. and is threatening to pop the third in the middle. That awesome, so like <laughs> iconic, dude. And it's cool because as a person but, who doesn't like Wolverine, you'll acknowledge though that that's cool. So it, it just goes to show you so, this, it, it, that transcends your dislike of the mutants in general. Absolutely. But and also as I'm reading it, I'm like, dude, this is like Mandarin's kind of cool as hell in these issues. And it's just like it sucks because I'm like, this isn't in an Iron Man comic, right. but he's freaking super smooth and cool in these issues, um, and he looks great. And in fact, I thought the armor was the worst of all the looks. So he had the suit, but then he has this more like traditional garb that he's in when he's with Jubilee after yeah. he dresses her up uh, in his like his low pan outfit as right. you mentioned earlier. I thought it looks really good there too and in fact that reminds me of kind of the way he looked in the Tom Morgan Lynn Kaminsky issues during the Hands of the Mandarin. He's wearing kind of a similar sort of kimono kind of a thing mm-hmm. um, with the dragons on it and stuff. Looks very similar. So I think that's a really good look for him too. I think the armor looks fine whenever it's done correctly. It didn't look great in these issues just because it looked so cool in the other uh, the other portrayals. But uh, And I think that between because his personality comes through really well too you have to give Chris Claremont credit for selling his arrogance and I like how Wolverine points out that the reason why he knew that he could uh, talk Mandarin out of further uh, hostilities was that he feels like he's such a gift to Earth that he wouldn't possibly imperil his life because what would the world be without him you know that sort of attitude and I I thought that spoke well to his character he's not in the the three issues all that much but when he is there you get a really good sense of who he is and I'm, I'm guessing by the fact that you respond well to these issues that that was an accurate reflection of who this character was. Yeah, I think so. And and again, I just appreciated the effort. Mm -hmm. You know, I appreciate the effort that this other creative team on another book who could have easily just mailed this in, they put in like real effort to it. And I I appreciate that. And look, it looked great. Yeah, ideally what you do is when you're training partners, it it makes you reevaluate how the hero interacts with that particular villain and gives you an opportunity to elevate them. And to some degree, I think you had that with the two McDuffie issues. I think that in the plotting, both the Wrecker and Chemistro come off as fairly impressive. I mean, Iron Man is really struggling against both of those guys. But the problem is, visually, it's rendered in such a way that it negates any gains there because they look like doofuses. As, as it, it complete oh, everybody, Rhodey looks like a receding hairline. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a mess. And man. Iron Man yeah. looks bad because he's on the ropes for so much of the story while also looking like a goober. And I was like, look, Dwayne McDuffie tried to do some of this with Camestro's, uh, the OG Camestro working at the amputee rehab facility, and then you bring his brother in, his brother attacks the other foot. He tried, but none of it really had much to do with Iron Man outside of that facility. Uh, it, it was just, the X-Men stuff is just a different level in all respects. Yeah. In all, uh, art, plotting, uh, script, everything is just so much better in those issues. Hey Jared, I have a question. What's up? Well, I've been a part of the Longbox Crusade for about a year and a half now. Yeah, well, that's not a question, man. I know, I'm getting to it. That was called Build Up. Like I was saying, I've been with the Long Boss Crusade and I have gone out and represented the show faithfully. That's still not a question. I'm still building up. I was wondering, could I be a part of the official promo? There's this great promo for the podcast that airs across podcast land and it has Pat Sampson, the founder of the show, you, the art cell artist, and your brother Jason, a.k.a. Weasel Skull. But it doesn't have me, Delvin Williams, the Dark Web. Could you ask the guys if they would let me be a part of the promotion since you were the one who invited me onto the show? 
Well, not to be a Mr. Quick to correct, but that was at least two questions. Still, I guess I'll ask. Let me go talk to the guys and you stay here. Okay, great. Thanks, man. Hey, guys. Hey, what's up, Jared? What's up, Jared? I have a question. Delvin's been with us for like a year and a half. That's not a question. Uh, yeah, I know. It's called Build Up. Hey, can we finally include him on the promo? It's the least we can do. He doesn't know that we're getting paid yet. And he never will. I mean, do we need him? After all, we already have the Longbox Crusade. And I provide awesome synopsis and insight on Crusader Chronicles. And I host Saturday Matinee Theater and also provide these nuts jokes. Hey, I do that. Me too. So we're fine as it is. What does Delvin do? We should just let him go. Wait, he hosts Transformers Chronicles. You should know that, Pat. You're on that show. So what do you say? Can we keep him? Ah, fine. Let's do it. Let's do it live. We could have done this with him in the room. It would have made more sense. Why is he outside? I think we were doing a bit. Okay, let's do this. The Longbox Crusade Podcast Network is the place to be if you like deep dives in the comics of yesteryear with the Longbox Crusade. Chronological reading journals with Crusader Chronicles. Indexing forgotten TV shows, films, and serials with Saturday Matinee Theater. Pitting two randomly selected action films against one another in action film face-off cataloging the Marvel run of the Transformers comic with Transformers Chronicles and whatever else the demented minds of Pat, Jared, Jason, and Delvin can come up with. If that sounds like it might be for you, be sure to subscribe to The Longbox Crusade on iTunes, Google Play, and pretty much all reputable podcast feeds. Or check this out directly at www.longboxcrusade.com where we continue our quest to... Continued in Avengers, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I don't know. But re- listen to more episodes, folks. Acts of Avengers. If you're like us, who only read some issues here and there, I'm really, I kind of want to listen to all of these to figure out, like, wh- wh- what were the good issues? Maybe I'll go pick them up and go read them. Because, I again, the concept is so good. The concept seems very obvious. It seems really obvious, right? But to do it all at one time, I think is pretty cool. Yeah. I, mean, um, I think that this is the first time this was tried to, other people have tried to do this again. Underworld Unleashed is Acts of Vengeance. Um, Year of the Villain is Acts of Vengeance. You know, they, they, DC in particular, clearly the Dan Didio regime was really impressed with Acts of Vengeance because they've tried to do it again multiple times. Now, me personally, my favorite manifestation is Underworld Unleashed, but I'm also a DC stand, so I, I acknowledge my bias. The concept, I think, came from Mark Ruinwald, and uh, it, it's definitely more of a Marvel concept, but it's a good one. I, I have to praise him for that. So I, uh, let's wrap it up with this. So if we don't think the Wrecker and Camestro probably should have been selected to to go against Iron Man. Who do you think would have been a better fit other than Doctor Doom, which obviously Doctor Doom works, but his one issue of this does not count. Okay, it does. I'm sorry, it doesn't count. You can throw the banner on it all day long. This has nothing to do with Acts of Vengeance. Outside of Doctor Doom, who's a cool villain from somebody else who existed in 89 that you, or maybe not, just overall that you think would have been a cool um, opposition to Tony Stark and Iron Man? Well, my first argument is I don't have a problem with those two villains being thrown up against Iron Man. I just think that there were some issues with the execution. I think that both those villains did reasonably well against Iron Man, and I don't think that they were bad calls. That having been said, though, since just to, to play into the game, uh, me being a Doctor Strange guy, I'm thinking someone like Baron Mordo, play up the magic against the science aspect would be cool. Iron Man's not somebody who necessarily has a great time against telepathy, so perhaps somebody with those type of powers. Again, if you've got um, an Iron Man f- a villain fighting uh, mutants, then maybe have a mutant fight Iron Man. Or, again, I like getting involved with the more 
cosmic elements. Thanos was still dead, but you could have gotten somebody from the Eternals or the Celestials and played up, you know, just the scale being so huge to really challenge Iron Man and having to have him step up. But I understand too that because of the the nature of the conceit, you're really going to need to do more with the uh, more ground level heroes if you get too cosmic. Like how would they even reach, you know, somebody at those power levels? So honestly, I don't think that it was bad choices. I I think the Wrecker and uh, Chemistro are perfectly fine. I wish they looked cool and I wish that uh, maybe Dwayne McDuffie had had a little bit more time to work on the script and the plot so that, although then again, it might have been a situation where the, the book got drawn and he just had to go in there and put what dialogue he could in, in a short span of time. I don't know how long he, he had to work on the dialogue. That was my number one issue was though, the dialogue, particularly during the fight scenes, just was lame. I'd almost rather they'd gone silent during those periods because so much of it was just like, just bad. Just like embarrassing for him to have written that dialogue. You are wrong. The, dude, the record, as, as powerful as the record is, he's just a goon, dude. And Camestro is a nobody. So for Iron Man's best villain, Mandarin, to go to another book, I think that Iron Man deserves to have somebody of a little higher statue in his book. Obviously, Iron Man didn't deserve anything in 1989 because everybody hated the guy. But uh, I, look, if you're going to take the man, like they didn't take Whiplash and put him against the X-Men. They took the Mandarin and put him against the X-Men. So don't give me freaking the wrecker and Camestro. Like, you kidding me, dude? It's not a fair trade. Um, uh, so so I, like a super adaptoid, maybe? Get out of here, super adaptoid. <laughs> I want to see Red Skull. I think the Red Skull talking well, about like, I don't you think can have the some Red Skull weird... can do anything against Iron Man. I think that Iron Man, unless they're going to do like a, a, a corporate intrigue kind of thing. But I honestly think that Iron Man is out of Red Skull's league. I mean, he might be right. And that, that's the same thing. I was going to say that my example is going to be the Kingpin where you could have a Stark Enterprises Fisk kind I think, of deal. I think deal Kingpin going is out of Red Skull's league. Are you? <laughs> no. I think the Kingpin is like way, like Iron Man is way, like he could buy and sell Wilson Fisk. Mm-hmm. Um, forget like power levels. Are you kidding me? Um, but I think something like that where you could at least, you got to have something that the characters have in common. Like if, if anything, you know, the Red Skull could have some weird lines about appealing to Tony Stark being on quote unquote his side, you know, as a freaking Nazi, you know, white guy lover. You know what I mean? You could do something with that. Whereas the record was literally just like, I'm going to hit him with my crowbar. Well, uh, I just thought it would some- be better than if we're going to try to do Thor villains, Enchantress. Oh, Enchantress would have been great, dude. Are you <laughs> yeah. kidding me? Yeah. Where she's or Tony is basically the male Enchantress, right? In <laughs> in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, again, so I, I just, you've please. got destroy, power level wise. She she's kind of overpowering. She's got her feminine allure, which he's going to be a sucker for. You could actually have her doing stuff where he's been she's manipulating him within the company too, and build up to an actual sorcery versus science thing. She could have done both of the issues on her own. She wouldn't need a, a second villain for that. I, you could have done a great where Enchantress just kind of just walks straight into Stark Enterprises, and Mister Arbogast is giving her like the fifth degree, even though she's supposed to be there. Or whatever. I mean, they're so much better than Camestro turned a <laughs> semi truck into glass, bro, into glass. Well, and also uh, Mandarin turning up in an X Men comic and fighting the likes of Wolverine, even though he's much more powerful than a Wolverine, that's still something of an upgrade just by association. You're downgrading Iron Man by having him be associated with the Wrecker and Camistro, especially at that point in time. But really, just in general, he can only help them. More likely, they hurt him, you know, in terms of clout. Yeah, or, or the leader or something, man. Leader I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah. G- g- give me bad. something here. So I thought, anyway, that, that's who I would have done. I would have much preferred a higher profile. Of course, Iron Man's my guy, so I would have preferred a, h- a higher profile. But I think that the fact that his highest profile villain was given to the highest profile book at the time, and he got scraps in return, I think it's a little messed up. Mm-hmm. So, But it's much better than Mandarin ending up in you know Avengers West Coast or something. I'm going to write a letter to the bullpen and see if they publish it. Permanent Marvelite Maximus followers include Dynamic Dual Podcast, Erebus Rye, Following Films, Geeky Lizzie, Jin, Kesper Bicycle, Leonor, Olivia, The Only American Captain Britain Fan, Rohit, San Francisco Dam, DD Lafrax Podcast, and This Lightsaber Kills Fascists. Fearless Facebook front facers include Debash, Derek William Crabb, John Fowler, and Michael Wagner. Retweet frantic ones include The Earth 2 Podcast, Nathaniel Devon San and talk nerdy to me. Keepers of the Favorites Flame include Alan Middleton, Austin Kirkendall, B. Bailey, hashtag no to intolerance, Casey Lau, Choose Film Podcast, Deepak, Dragon Ranger, Alyssa McCausland, Firestorm Fan, GK Wordsmith, Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast, Harmless Entertainment, Jason Roga, Jennifer DeRoss, Jim Imbruglia, Yogos Classicos e Antigos, John is Watching Cartoons, Carl Disley, Keith G. Baker, King Dinosaur, The Master of the Galaxy, Max Reads Comics, might get send aliens to me. Non-obstinate 2000. Pisilinto, ally of Krakoa. Peter DeVildis. Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. Quintinan. Richard Field, who noted of our Captain America episode. Can't wait to hear it. Richard G. Ricky Bell Jr. Ryan Burke. Schlocktopus. Sean Phillips. Stimbot 5000. Warlord Worlds. And Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace Podcast. Among our enough sayers on episode 106, Marvel's Captain America, 80 Heroic Years of Cinema. Marvel Universe All Online said, my nine-year-old brain thought this was just the coolest thing ever, and I still hear that theme song when I see Captain America, referring to the 1979 TV movies. Chris Dunford wrote, I strongly recommend this one to comic lovers. Cap's struggles with the American experience have been one of the most important contributions comics have made to public discourse. And finally, Jeffrey Brown adds, this cheers me up. He showed off a replica of Captain America's shield, noting, I wish I had a prop version from the movies, but I like this one. <laughs> Face front, true believers. Stan Lee presents the Merry Marching Society of the Marvel Superhero Podcast. The 108th Sage, Ale, who added Gotta Look It Out, Baby Skeletor, Benedict Excelsior 73, Brian Dockery, who added I still love that 80s Captain America movie to this day, thanks for the marvelous shout out, Canoes, who added I love this podcast, so cool, Chris Dunford, who added a Merry Marvel Marching Society button image, Chris Lydon, Doc Strange, Dirk Ashton, who added thanks RSP, Green Lantern HG, No Evil Shall Escape My Sight, The Hammer Strikes, Geeky Stuff and VoiceOver, History of Comics on Film, Hulkling, hashtag Black Lives Matter. I was Joe Crawford. Jason Snick Venable. Jeffrey Brown of Earth 1610. Jenna Reagan, who added Cool Beans. King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun Podcast. Marvel Universe Online. Paranormal News Network. Paul Matthew Carr. Randy Caldwell. Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. Reverend Odell Abner Dracula. Tim Price Podcrasher. Tony Scipione. Tora. Grand's Lesbian Planet Eater. Wacky Bronze Silver Comic Book Villains. Weapon Extra. Transgender Cyborg. And Zwick. Jameson. This has been a non-for-profit fan production from Rolled Spine Podcast. Any copyrighted material presented herein are presumed covered under fair use, with no infringement intended. Till next time, Excelsior! 
the Merry Marvel Marching Society. We don't know where we're going, but we're on the way. A podcasting crossover mega event in the spirit of JL May. Coming in March 2021. Covering Marvel's fall crossover event, Axe of Vengeance. A cabal of evil threatens the Avengers and the entire Marvel Universe. Doctor Doom, the Red Skull, Kingpin, Doctor Doom, Magneto, the Wizard, Doctor Doom, the Mandarin, and Doctor Doom have banded together to pit Earth's mightiest heroes against foes they have never faced before. An array of heroes face enemies they are totally unfamiliar with. But who is secretly pulling the vengeful Cabal's strings? And can the Avengers take down the true mastermind before his hidden scheme succeeds? Featuring podcasts from Third Degree Burn, Back to the Bins, Avenger Spotlight, Coffee and Comics, Comic Book Time Machine, Doom Speak, Van Holes Podcast, Fire and Water Podcast Network, Head Speaks, Into the Weird, Justice Not Entirely Dissimilar to Lightning, A Thunderbolts Podcast, Longbox Crusade, Married with Comics, the Quantum Cast, Resurrections, an Adam Warlock podcast, Rolled Spine podcasts, and Views from the Long Box. Marching its way to your favorite podcatchers and hosting sites in 2021. Yeah, this is one where I think it's good that we didn't have fix it because we're covering a lot of material. And if we added one more person, I think it would have probably drug on too much. But I think as a two-man, we're bouncing off each other and it's keeping up the momentum better. You're not there. Okay.